Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Crystal. It begins as a quest. You must find the shard. The crystal shard. The crystal shard? To save our world, you A wonderful fantasy adventure. a mystical realm of sights and sounds. Enter the world of the Dark Crystal. Now, from directors Jim Henson and Frank Oz and Gary Kurtz, the producer of Star Wars, comes a new dimension of fantasy and adventure. to another world, another time, in the age of wonder, the Dark Crystal. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Y también con nosotros es un hombre muy guapo, El Goro. How's it going, Mike? <laughs> this week, we're looking at the 1982 film from Jim Henson and Frank Oz, The Dark Crystal. The film is a dark fantasy story of Jen, one of two remaining Gelflings in the world of Mithra. He goes on a quest to reunite a shard with the titular Dark Crystal in order to restore balance to this world. That's the super simple version of the story, but we'll be talking more in detail about it and giving lots of spoilers as we go along. So if you haven't seen The Dark Crystal yet go ahead and do so before listening to the rest of the show. Now, Kat, when was the first time you saw The Dark Crystal, and what did you think? It show my age now. I saw it on its first theatrical release in 1982, 
87 or 83. I'm not sure when we had it here in Britain. And I fucking loved it. I absolutely loved it because Jim Henson was my world when I was eight. He was just my whole world. That was one of my earliest memories of going to the cinema that I have, along with Popeye and um, The Secret of Nim and the Muppet movie. As for myself, I think I saw it probably late 80s, early 90s. It was something that uh, my mom had recorded off of Sky Movies, I believe, because we were living in the UK at the time. And I remember it's very distinctly being very much tied to Labyrinth because it was around that time that I was introduced to that film as well. And whereas Labyrinth was this very kid-friendly, fun energy, you know, David Bowie pop song experience type movie, Dark Crystal was something else something much much darker as befitting the name and it was something that i couldn't i can't still can't imagine that how i got into it as a child because while there are certainly things within it that are very very appropriate for children there it's entire tone its presentation it could be very alienating for many kids uh, certainly as opposed to henson's later work with the much more accessible labyrinth it's funny. I only saw Labyrinth like maybe three years ago. I was much more familiar with The Dark Crystal. Like you, Kat, I saw it in its theatrical run and absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, the Dark Crystal kind of doomed a little bit when it came out. I think it opened the same week that E.T. came out. So you had the really light. It's, it's always surprising to go back to E.T. and see just how dark that movie is and how kind of scary that was unless you're watching the uh, walkie talkie version but um (laughs) (laughs) you know dark crystal was definitely a very heavy kids movie now what we ended up seeing wasn't as heavy as the original version of it and we'll talk about that in a little bit but yeah it was definitely something that i hadn't seen before uh even though it played with a lot of the tropes that i was already starting to get familiar with you know i was a big fan of star wars and before this we had uh you know dune so we we know about the prophecy type of films where someone has to fulfill a prophecy and it's usually follows kind of the same beats the dark crystal is very much like that so we get some very very familiar tropes but the way that it's presented is absolutely stunning and this was probably the first time other than well i can't even say the muppet movie was a fully muppet was a fully puppet movie because there were a lot of human actors in that this was the first time i had seen a movie that was fully puppet driven and it really put you in this world fully it was such a great world to be in and to play in and just took me by surprise and really made me feel like I was part of their world and brought me inside of the story. I mean, in so many ways, it is a very unconventional film, even as you were uh, drawing the illusions between it and other prophecy-driven hero quests. Even the way that that particular narrative unfolds is much, much different in The Dark Crystal compared to some of the ones that you evoked. And I'm sure we'll get into that as we get deeper into the conversation. Algoro, you said you find it a lot darker than Labyrinth. I find Labyrinth quite dark because it's about a fucking narcissist. <laughs> sure. <I'm> almost pedophile. <laughs> well, but, but we're going to talk about that later on. But I don't know. See, I don't know if it was just because in the UK we had quite dark children's entertainment anyway around that time. And like literally a year later, I was watching things like Threads. So I kind of took it on the chin. I was watching things like Warship Down around that time. It was all about death and destruction, and it wasn't 
safe and uh, secret and nim's quite um dark as well which i saw around the same time that's quite a dark film so i don't know it explains a lot about me <laughs> i have like on those sort of really dark fantasy films really influence like if people know my work i kind of gravitate towards that and gothic and sort of around the same time i was getting into ham horror as well so it all seemed part of that so, I did, so like being that age and and being exposed to stuff like uh, the Children of Stones as well, and a lot of sort of dark children's programs that we had. I don't know. The British culture was slightly different, you know. It wasn't so Disney orientated. Like they like to get it into us early on, you know. <laughs> Life is hard. Everything is an epic quest, you, you know. And and you know people might get killed or you know warship down. Jesus Christ, that film. But um. Yeah, I don't know. My experience of it was different because I, it just seemed part of a lot of the other stuff I was watching at the time, which was also quite dark in a different way. And I think some of it has to do with when I actually saw it, because I think I was all four or five when I saw Dark Crystal. So while I would go on to see a lot of the darker stuff that you mentioned there, things like Secret of Nim, things like Watership Down, this was really my first introduction that I can remember into this kind of still uh, targeted towards children, but a darker a take on that sort of material, which was certainly the the goal of Jim Henson. I think one of the things that arose during the research of this was the fact that he wanted something that was darker. He wanted something that was more in the tradition of grim fairy tales and not the Disney-fied version of these fairy tales. So while, yes, um, I, I could certainly see why some people might be more primed for it at the time that I discovered it. I was very much coming out of that Disney tradition. I was, you know, very little, ch- little kid. And this was just something that was somewhat uh, mind blowing, but still something I returned to quite often as I was a child, because there is something tremendously compelling about this particular film and its approach to fantasy material. Even as a little pipsqueak, I was such a such a pain in the ass. Uh, one of my first movie-going experiences that I remember was going to see a re-release of Fantasia with my mom. And there was a kid who was probably a year, maybe two years younger than me behind us. And he just kept complaining through the whole movie going, where's Mickey Mouse at? Where's Mickey Mouse? And I just kept turning around and shushing this kid to the point of like being, you know, almost violent shushing of this kid. And I was just like, ah, this movie is fantastic. What are you doing? You know, and I'm enjoying like the scene with like Satan coming out and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, this is fantastic. (laughs) And it's just like, shut up, kid. Screw you and your Mickey Mouse. That's that's way later in this movie. <laughs> See, I was complaining in the other direction. Every time we would watch Fantasia, I'd always want to fast forward to the dinosaur bits and then the Chernabog bit at the end. So, <laughs> Right, right. Well, this was before fast forward. This was back when you could only see Fantasia in the theater. So, or the clips on like the wonderful world of Disney. And when they did the clips on the wonderful world of Disney, it was always the Mickey Mouse stuff. So it's like, uh, yeah, all right. Yeah, let's. Sorcerer's Apprentice is one part of this much <laughs> larger thing. So, but in to your point, Kat, I used to really glom on to British entertainment. I like the sensibility of the British stuff. And there was a show, and I got, I wish I could remember the name of it, but they would import some British entertainment onto Nickelodeon when it was first out. And there was one about this girl who, I think she summoned a guy who was from like more puritanical times and he was really like 
kind of doing her bidding, but at the same time, you knew he was going to screw her over. And I think it was on a TV show called like The Third Eye or something. Somewhere, sometimes you find someone very special, someone who hears the unheard, someone who understands the mystery. Sometimes there's someone who sees with the third eye. And those kind of things were just like, yeah, this is darker and heavier. I was, I was all about that. I was like, yeah, this is fantastic. So I became an Anglophile for a lot of years just because of the entertainment that was coming out and that it wasn't as, as candy coated as a lot of the U.S. stuff. I don't remember that show actually. I loved, it wasn't Stick of the Dump. That was a caveman. We had the boy from space as well. That was creepy. Not as creepy as the far out space nuts or anything, but it was creepy. It, and it was like a Norman J. Warren film for kids, The Boy from Space. It was just bizarre. But no, I don't remember that show you're talking about. I think the creepiest show that I watched when I was a kid was uh Lidsville. That show still freaks me the fuck out. Lidsville, what the hell is that? Sid Marty Croft uh show about uh a guy that falls into a dimension where there are anthropomorphic hats. And Charles Nelson Riley is <laughs> Voodoo the Magician and uh, constantly trying to thwart him. In- How's that for a topper? <laughs> The thing I was really surprised about when doing research for this movie was, you know, I never knew that there were more than one version of uh, Dark Crystal. Like I had heard years ago, but when I was a kid, of course, I didn't know. I didn't know the story. I mean, you don't know those things when you're, you know, ten years old and watching these movies. And I'm sure, El Goro, that you didn't know when you were when you were four years old. You're like, well, the original, the original was way better. <laughs> you know, I had I had I had no no sense of a larger world or even the alternative versions of this thing. It wasn't until the DVD age, with the supplementary special features and the rise of the internet and all these little bits of trivia, that I became aware of the. Somewhat of a compromised version that we've been seeing of the Dark Crystal for so many years. Only retroactively that I'm looking at this stuff and and seeing, like, looking at the, the finished film, the one that we are familiar with, watching that again yesterday, and I'm just like, yeah, this voiceover is a little much. And then all of the inner monologue from Jen, our main character it feels a little tacked on. Like it feels very much like I am here to explain this stuff to you and to really make you feel like you are inside of my head, you know, and that's the smart thing to do, right. To give our main character an inner monologue. But at the same time, it felt a little too like, is he new to this world as well? We're new to this world, but it feels like he's very new to this world too. Well, it also gives the impression uh, largely of the protagonist of Jen, at least watching it now with adult eyes, that he, he just almost throughout most of the film seems kind of useless. 
I mean, what he accomplishes is is actually very little. It's particularly in com- in comparison to well, uh, Kira, and also just the fact that because they feel the need to re- reiterate all of these points ostensibly for a younger audience, that it just seems like he's just repeating things over and over again, and he just doesn't seem to get it. I just think the narration after seeing these alternate versions that I didn't know existed until very recently seemed like surplus to requirements, really. Like you said, they just seem to keep hammering in the point over and over and over again. Whereas the original print without the narration is a lot more surreal and it feels a lot more in keeping with this strange world that's all about symbols and and um, I think Brian Froud called it like elemental. It's like more instinctive, obviously scarier, but I don't know. I like that part of it. I don't know how I would have reacted to that as a child, but the narration did become quite annoying once you knew that it wasn't supposed to be there because it's quite simplistic. And and like um, Al Goro said, it didn't really seem to have much of a point. It just kind of exposed how Jen is just ambling around, not really knowing what he's supposed to be doing. It's only like the last five minutes he actually snaps into action, and that's kind of because he's compelled to do it. I I would like to see a properly restored version without, without that narration. Yeah, and the closest I think we're going to get is there's at least – two fan edits or there's one that's called the director's cut which i don't know how close to being a director's cut that is uh and obviously there's bits of the work print in there there's the work print version which is really rough and a lot of it is actually in black and white and i don't know if that's just because it's gone through so many transfers that the color is just given up you know it's <laughs> kind of like ntsc after a while is just like ah oh, fuck it i can't even hold on to these colors anymore uh and then there is a fan edit that takes bits from the work print takes bits from what looks like a one inch master of an early version of it and then it has dvd looking quality uh, as far as the rest of this stuff goes the director's cut quote-unquote and the fan edit i think the director's cut works better because the fan edit also tries to rearrange some things and doesn't necessarily do it 100 percent successfully also omits some pieces that maybe shouldn't necessarily be omitted but all three of these things the thing that all three of them have in common is there's no opening narration and there's no gen uh narration i'm okay with a little bit of the opening narration, like kind of doing that almost once upon a time kind of thing. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams. Thanks for everything, mom and dad. Will always be worth it. Apply today at penfed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. The whole idea of the... Another world. Another time. In the age of wonder. A thousand years ago, this land was green and good. Until the crystal cracked. For a single piece was lost, a shard of the crystal. Then strife began, and two new races appeared. 
the cruel Skeksis, the gentle mystics. But then it gets to be a little bit much. Like, give me, like, going back to what we were talking about before we started recording El Goro, give me, like, Conan-level, you know, <laughs> just, like, that 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 brief intro and then set me loose. You know, let me go into this world and never put me inside of Jen's head. And I think I would actually get to be better friends with Jen. Certainly. And like you said, that opening narration does establish a sort of fairy tale atmosphere to the proceedings and the repetition of certain key lines like the ritual gives no comfort. The, the music gives no comfort. I like that. I like the, the Trinity aspect of it. And there are certain there are certain changes to the film from the earlier versions to the theatrical that I also do like as interesting as it is to hear the original Skeksis dialogue, this sort of created language that they did. Perhaps it is just my nostalgia for the original, but I missed the hearing the English voices of them. I missed the amount of character they were able to impart by uh, the voice acting that was in a well recognizable language. So I perhaps my ideal version of it would maintain that original narration, maintain the English dub on the Skeksis, but completely excise the uh, inner monologue of Jen, who we really don't need. Yeah, I like the fact that that is like the, that, no, I'm trying to think which print it was. So it's the director's cut. That was definitely my favorite of the fan edits. I thought it was a bit like Silver Globe or something, or June. It was like really, really dark and in this sort of surreal sci-fi tradition. So I like the fact that the um, Skeksis, they sort of talk in these growls and this weird language. It makes it kind of scarier. I do like their voices in the original edit, though. I will go with what Al Gore was saying. I do like the fact that they have little personalities. But I also liked the director's cut version because it was a bit more primal and you didn't really know what they... When you're introduced to them, you don't really know who they are, which was good. It makes them more sinister. He's not dead yet, my Lord Chamberlain. Ha <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm always curious if they were going to do subtitles for them because I've read different things that they were going to subtitle them or they weren't going to subtitle them. I really liked the use of the Skeksis language and Agra speaking in her language more. And we get a little bit of Agra speaking in her language, but then she switches to English for Jen, which is fine because Jen, the one thing that Jen does do for us as our protagonist is that he does speak English. So we really get him as being, you know, the one person that we recognize and putting him as the one English speaker. And of course, the Mr. Mystics will speak English to him. Kira will speak English to him. Augur will eventually speak English to him. By having him be our English speaker primary, we get to experience the world through him and hone in on him as our protagonist. And I kind of like that he's alone in this world where he is the only real native English speaker and everyone else around him is speaking their tongues and kind of throws me off a little bit in a good way that the Skeksis are speaking in their language and makes it more unfamiliar and also makes those weird things that they're doing like the way that they eat, the way that they have that ritual of the stone, which I still don't necessarily know. You know, they, they seem to be very impressed when they hit this stone with the sword. Like, okay, but it, it almost works better that they're speaking this other language. So we don't know what they're doing and why they're doing these things, which actually kind of works for me. But I, I kind of just wish that there was a version available legally where – they would have both the English tracks and the Skeksis tracks because at the end of the day, by having to go back in and redub all of these things that were recorded, and I, I love saying this, in the original Skeksis, that the lips or the mouth movements don't necessarily always match up to what's being said. Now, some people might think that I'm crazy and that, you know, voices are voices, but if you watch foreign dubbed cartoons and you hear the way that things are really kind of awkward the way that they put these words into these characters mouths that aren't necessarily and it's not synced but like the lip flap has to kind of follow certain things and so if you get sentences that are shorter or you know just a lot of times it's shorter stuff and then you get a lot of like japanese characters going uh-huh uh-huh yeah or like just weird like extra syllables we don't get that in the dark crystal thank goodness <laughs> No. And especially since we're used to the Jim Henson company delivering an illusion, because honestly, that's what puppetry is. It's the imbuing of life into an inanimate object. And that is accomplished so greatly by the Henson company through so many techniques, including that close synchronization between the flaps and the dialogue, that when they do have that little bit of incongruity, it does come off as a bit jarring. The only reason that I, I I think I'm more inclined towards the English language for the Skeksis, uh, one, as I previously noted, the nostalgia factor to it. You know, I grew up with these, a certain kind of familiarity of just isolated lines of dialogue that can instantly transport me back to childhood. But I also think, also think it serves an additional function of giving the audience a greater in into the the corruption of the Skeksis, because what they are meant to represent and through reading some of the background material on this, it's basically the worst impulses of society, a truly materialistic, corrupt society. And by placing them with a with English language dialogue, 
it allows us, I think, to greater see ourselves reflected within them as monstrous and as alien as they particularly are by giving them language, a language that we recognize as ours, assuming you're an English language speaker. But I'm sure they did it in other dubs as well. Um, it, it allows us to see them as, you know, a, a, a extension of our worst impulses, an extension of our worst elements within ourselves, which I think was something that was intentional on, on the behalf of Henson. Although, of course, the English language dialogue for the Skeksis was a compromise later on in the production. It's kind of like watching Blade Runner for me, where I will always hear Decker's voiceover no matter what version of it i'm watching so i can understand where you're coming from as far as like even if i'm watching the dark crystal with the skexis language i'm trying to hear in my mind those original lines so i i I think i know exactly where you're coming from with that particularly when the emperor goes mine mine and those voices are so good especially you already alluded to the chamberlain the chamberlain is fantastic and i didn't know until doing a little bit more research on this, that that is the same actor who was Pontius Pilate in Jesus Christ Superstar. And of course, he was in tons of other things, but that's the one I go back to. It's like, oh my God, that's Pilate. Yep, and uh, Claude Lamont from High Adventure in Kentucky Fried Movie. Hello. Welcome to High Adventure. I'm Paul Burmaster. With us today is the famed adventurer and explorer Claude Lamont. Claude, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. It's a great pleasure to be here. You know, it's such a thrill to have someone with us who lives such great adventures. Yes, well, I live the unknown, I love the unknown, I am the unknown. Claude, uh, where are you living now? That is unknown, I don't know. Hmm. Claude, let me ask you about the film that we're going to see today. Now, I understand there was great danger involved. Hmm. Yes, there were a great many dangers involved. But perhaps the most dangerous was the poisonous fish. Poisonous fish. Poisonous fish. Poisonous fish. Continue, it is your show. No, you're my guest. The Chamberlain, when I was a kid, scared the shit out of me. That was the one that scared me. So, do you, are you familiar with um, League of Gentlemen over there? He's like, Papa Lass, you're my wife now. He's like, he just really... He's so intense. He really terrified me as a kid because he's just all over them and his little oh, he's, <laughs> he's brilliant though. But he was ter- that was the one thing that did scare me as a kid was the Chamberlain. The Chamberlain when he gets stripped is one of the scariest moments for me, and especially what he looks like afterwards really sketched me out. Oh, me too. And it was actually interesting that this was the first time and the many times that I've watched the movie that I was really paying attention to the detail work of the puppet under of the Chamberlain when it had been stripped of clothing. And it was the first time I noticed the vestigial secondary arms of the Skeksis, again, sort of connecting them to the uh, more to the mystics. When you look at this thing, it is and I don't think Jim Henson would hesitate to to agree with this. It is super new age. You know, we're talking about crystals that have healing powers, you know, and we're talking about balance in the universe. And we're talking about two races who are split apart and eventually need to come back together. And to what you were saying before, El Goro, you have the basest elements being represented by the Skeksis and you have the, you know, the, the higher elements, let's call them, being portrayed by the Uru or the mystics. And, you know, it's this whole idea of we can't 
have one without the other and that every human being has the good and the bad. You know, you're going back to the Tao. You always have the black and the white and to split them apart means that you have two unequal pieces and they're always going to be either in opposition or eventually they need to come back together. Oh, definitely. And I liked also the fact that they they do acknowledge that that interconnected duality and the interdependent duality. Because one of the things that I read when doing the research was that the portrayal of the mystics is while they are this serene, enlightened race, they are also powerless to affect the world. So it's all well and good to have spiritual harmony, but they can't actually do anything in the world. They need that drive that is that is represented in the Skeksis and corrupt corrupted within the Skeksis, to be sure, but these two elements need to be present in order to be a complete, well-rounded spiritual being. It's like when Kirk got split apart by the transporter, and the one was so ineffectual, and the other one was a complete madman. It's like, yeah, you have to have both of those pieces. I think the mystics remind me of the people, these hippies that you find at Glastonbury, not the festival, the town, that's kind of hang around, and they're all like, you know, Hey, they're very new age. And one thing I did um, was sad about in the director's cut that they seemed to cut out in in the uh, theatrical print was there was a lot more emphasis on ritual and ceremony in the early scenes. So you have the Skeksis, their whole ceremony, whatever it was, a burial or whatever, was like some sort of satanic ritual that was completely gone. And then they narrowed down the mystic's little drum ceremony with their crystals and stuff um and i'm kind of sad that they cut that part out because it sort of adds to this whole sort of strange magical universe yeah i think you're referring to the funerals that they have because both the thing that i even though they they hammer it home in the voiceover a few times is that there's a relationship when i was a kid i didn't necessarily get this relationship right up front was that the emperor dies and the head of the mystics dies and that again you can't have one without the other and you get that really clear later on when there's another skexis who dies and while the mystics are walking one of them just disappears and it's like oh okay that makes it a lot more clear but in the beginning, when we're being introduced to the world, we have the Emperor dying and then the leader of the mystics dying. And then, to your point, Kat, they remove the funeral scene. And it is interesting to see the dichotomy of how they handle these two funerals. And I kind of wish that those had been in place as well. I think they're just trying to get us into the narrative a little quicker. But I was OK with the world building at that point and kind of wish they had kept that as well. Yeah, as we as we have just within the theatrical now, we have a scene that um, one can't help but wonder if perhaps uh, George Lucas borrowed very heavily for the uh, death of Yoda and the year later in Return of the Jedi. Well, if that's the case, I mean, there's a lot of borrowing going on. You know, Agra is one of my favorite characters. Oh, yeah. And watching Agra again, um, she is so Yoda, but she's like Yoda when Yoda wasn't being serious. Yoda when he's introduced to us and he's going through Luke's stuff and, you know, throwing shit out and then finding a flashlight and really enjoying that. That totally reminds me of when Agra sees the stuff at the Skeksis castle and just kind of takes it. And you're like, okay, yeah, she's going to, that's going to be in her bag later on. And there's a lot of that, you know, and of course, you know, you've got Frank Oz portraying both, but then later on they, 
did the voice with Billy Whitelaw, and that was great too. Also, and this kind of ties into you, Cat. This is I didn't realize that Billy Whitelaw was the uh, innkeeper in Hot Fuzz, and so when I finally found that out, I was like, oh, I can totally hear her voice, and that's one if people don't know the innkeeper role that's the one who calls simon pegg a fascist and i love her in that movie i was hoping to uh, check in check in but you've always been here excuse me oh i'm sorry i thought you were my husband you must be sergeant angel yes i am i'm joyce cooper i trust you had a pleasant trip fascist i beg your pardon system of government characterized by extreme dictatorship. Seven across. Oh, I see. It's uh, fascism. Fascism. Wonderful. Now, we've put you in the castle suite. Bernard will escort you up there. Well, uh, actually, I could probably make my own way up. Hag. I beg your pardon? Evil old woman considered frightful or ugly. It's 12 down. Oh, bless you. I love that I'm the hot first person now, but can I just say as well, Ogra, she turns up in Labyrinth again. I can't remember the character's name, but she's that character with all the bits and pieces who who sort of trying to cause confusion by bringing back all these toys. Yeah, I certainly remember that character. It seemed to be a, a, a kind of a you would one is tempted to call kind of a stock character that you can find within the Henson Company, particularly coming out of uh, Frank Oz. I don't know. Maybe that's just the type of character he likes to uh, portray in his puppetry. I had read that Oz did the voice of Augur for a while, and I know he did it on set, of course, but. I don't even remember him doing the voice in the director's cut or the fan edit of that, or was I just not paying attention? I mean, I know when, when Agra is speaking in Agra ease or whatever, it's a little tougher to tell who's doing the voice. When, when he, she speaks in English, it seems like it was always Billy Whitelaw that I was hearing, but I could be wrong. Are you a girlfriend? Yes. My name is Jen. Jeffrey, you're dead. Gotham killed them all. You can't be Gelfing. You look like Gelfing. You understand Gelfing. Because you are Gelfing. I'm looking for Augur. Uh, who sent you? My master. Wisest of the Uru. Where is he? Around here? He's dead. Could be any place then. I'm going back and watching the Darker Crystal fan edit of it. It definitely sounded different because I watched them back to back with each other. So I think that that version has the original Frank Oz in it. But I do think that Billy uh, Whitlaw went very close to what he was doing. Though half half the time when I was uh, listening to Billy Whitlaw's performance, I kept thinking of that booing lady from Princess Bride. And they weren't the same person, but they were doing something very similar with their voice. Your true love lives, and you marry another. True love saved her in the fire swamp, and she treated it like garbage. And that's what she is, the queen of refuse. So bow down to her if you want. Bow to her. Bow to the queen of slime, the queen of filth, the queen of putrescence. I talked probably a year or more ago about the film Fantastic Planet. And Fantastic Planet kind of does some things that we're doing in this movie as well, where we get to see the world outside of our main story. 
And those bits of world building again are some of my favorite things, like especially when we're seeing the dangerousness of the outside world where we just see like this creature eating that creature, eating this creature, and just the way that everything kind of moves along even outside of our narrative and just seeing that world of Mithra or Thra, they would call it. I really love those scenes. I, I wish there had been a little bit more of that. And those are kind of the things that we would get, I think, a little bit in like Fraggle Rock and some of the other things that Henson would work on, where it's just like, here's the world that we're living in and here's kind of like how things operate. It was really nice. Those were some of my favorite scenes. I'm right there with you. And it almost feels like they were drawing a particular bit of inspiration from almost deep sea life, particularly the little creatures that would suck themselves into crevices. And the idea that everywhere you look, there is something that is truly alive and mobile. I mean, even James Cameron borrowed from that aesthetic when he did uh, Avatar, you know, this sort of rich, dense alien world that. Everything is alive and possessed of a locomotion that we don't necessarily see in our terrestrial world. But if you look elsewhere on the planet, it's there. And But because it's not what is familiar to us becomes so incredibly alien. And I, I was just there were certain sequences then even just individual shots where I was just taken aback by the layering of elements and just wondering how, what kind of mind could conceive something so dense and build everything out there and put it all together in such a way that makes it look completely organic, but at the same time, as I mentioned, very, very alien. No, I totally agree with the fantastic planet reference. I absolutely love that film. Absolutely love that film to bits. And what it ties into what I said earlier about how children's entertainment then, at least in the UK, although this is an American film, wasn't safe and the world was dangerous. And you see that in Watership Down as well. Fantastic Planet does it really well. I think it makes it a bit safer in that they make it this complete fantasy world. So it's it makes it safer to explore that. Or like with Watership Down, you explore it through animals. It's not really connected to our reality. So it's like a, a safe place for children to explore the, the nature is dangerous and you know but even with the Muppet movie the capitalist wants to eat Kermit so even the Muppet movie has its, its moments that aren't safe I think they were really pushing the bar at the time um, you know to deliver this to children to deliver something that was kind of the opposite of what Disney were doing at the time I want to say that Henson was shooting the Muppets in the UK, and I know for sure that they shot this film in the UK. And obviously, Brian Froud, the guy who designed a lot of these things, was from the UK. And so there is that that connection. And to your point from earlier, El Goro, you know, you're talking about the mind that comes up with this. I think it was minds. I think it was plural because it seemed like they had so many. You know, Henson was not afraid to collaborate, thank goodness, and it felt like he got a really good team with this. You know, I mentioned the Yoda connection before, and this isn't obviously because of Gary Kurtz, who worked on The Empire Strikes Back, but Gary Kurtz being the producer of this, you know, had he was able to pull together a lot of great talent as well. And yeah, Froud and Oz and Henson, just all of these guys working together with teams and teams and teams of technicians and designers and artists being able to pull all this stuff together. I mean, this, I think it was like five years in the making to get this together. 
So it was just amazing that they could bring all of this. And then even just the techniques, you know, just even talking about like that, that pan across the land and seeing these, these things like kind of flutter up, you know, they almost look like flowers that are taking off. And I was reading, uh, there's a great uh, new book about uh, the making of the dark crystal by Cassine Gaines. And he was saying that, uh, those were actually reverse, uh, shot. So they were, they were, uh, we were seeing it in, um, backwards because they were being thrown down in landing on those things. And then to see it back, play back to us, they were taking off. So it was really, you know, just even that level of we're going to use this technique and then to see the making of the dark crystal and to see just how they would use the, the map paintings and all these things to again do world building. So many elements all being put into play in order to really make Thra feel like a real place. So here's a question for you, because this is one thing that became notable to me as I was um, watching it this time. That as much as I absolutely loved the puppet work on the Skeksis, on the Mystics, on any of the more fantastic creatures, for some reason or other... I couldn't connect with the puppetry work on the Gelflings. And perhaps it's because that their features are designed to be more human, that they actually seemed less real to me than the more fantastic creatures that you could just sort of buy into it. Perhaps it was entering into the realm of the Uncanny Valley, but it almost felt like they they were the ones that felt like more like puppets in a world full of puppets. Yeah, especially when you see poor Jen's legs, like when he's <laughs> sitting on something or playing his little pipe, and it's just like, oh yeah, those look like two, you know, tubes filled with socks or something. Or the shirtless scenes where it seems like you could <laughs> see the scenes in the puppet. Can I just say, going back to what you said about it being shot over here, I don't know if either of you listened to Froud's commentary, which was um it's very much about his creative process and the and the stuff that he offered but he did have henson gave him a lot of creative um input into the project and he was there working alongside uh henson and oz and everybody as the film was being shot and he he didn't just do, he's credited as doing the the creature concepts but he was very much a, an integral part of that project but one thing that i did really love about his commentary is when he talked about how henson had visited him in in devon here in in england and he was like this is this is what i want and so they kind of recreated that, but a more fantastical version, which is why it it's got this very Devon's got this very sort of fairy tale quality to it anyway. So they they used that like actual real things and brought them into the film and tried to recreate those. I love that about the film. Yeah, the commentary was really nice, and it was nice for me just on a personal level reading about um, the woman who ended up being Wendy Froud because she was a Michigan native. She went to uh, the Center for Creative Studies here in Detroit, and to hear her story about in this book by Gaines to read about her and her meeting Froud and <laughs> poor Froud. He, they're they're talking about like yeah, we want this stuff to look like this place in England. And then they bring him over to New York and put him to work. And he's just like, man, I'm out of my element completely. But he had to kind of rely on what he knew from, you know, his home. But him working in New York for a while on these sketches and stuff, he was kind of miserable. I felt a little bad for him on that that point. But then eventually he got to go back to his, his homeland. 
No, I totally agree, though, that Kira and Jen are maybe the weaker parts of it. And I'm okay with Kira, I guess because I see a little bit less of her than I see. Uh, and I guess that I don't see her legs, really. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I actually buy Kermit on the tandem bicycle more than I buy uh, Jen when he's there playing his pipe. I don't know if they just needed to add some movement to his legs or something, but yeah, it just, it, he was the a little bit weaker. And I know that they went through tons of designs to try to get a Jen and Kira that would be human-like enough for us to recognize, but I, I don't necessarily think that that had to be uh, so. I think they could have looked more alien, and I think that might have helped a little bit when it came to that because they were our human surrogates but yeah i think go ahead you can be a little bit more fantastic well especially since in certain light or wide shots that they were using body doubles i think they were using little people in there uh, i think deep roy actually got uh, has a credit in this film so it almost makes me wonder if they had gone a route perhaps similar to labyrinth where I know their big ambition was to make this a completely puppet and animatronic-driven film. But if they had had the Gelflings played by actual humans, would it have read better to my, my eyes than a human-like but not quite puppet? I was talking to a friend years ago, and he was talking about his screening of The Dark Crystal. And at first when he told me this, I thought he was absolutely full of shit. But he saw The Dark Crystal in a little theater in northern Michigan, and the uh, the actual masking on the screen was off. And he was telling me, oh yeah, when I saw it, it was completely ruined for me because I could see people's arms and their sleeves and all this stuff. You could see the humans operating the puppets. And I was like, no, no, that doesn't seem right at all. And then a few years after that, I went to see, I think it was Clockers with um, the Spike Lee film. And there's a scene in there where the camera is moving around, you know, he's doing a, a Scorsese, the, the camera's moving around two actors, and there was a problem with one of the splices in the movie. This is back when we used real film here, folks. There was a problem with one of the splices, and it threw the framing off while I was watching this movie. And I'm watching these two characters speaking, and I'm like, why? Who is this guy that's laying here between these two characters? I was really taken out of the movie. I'm just like, what? what is going on here? And then I noticed that he was holding a microphone. And then I noticed he was tipping it towards Harvey Keitel when he would speak. And he would tip it towards the other guy when he would speak. And I'm like, oh, okay. And people don't necessarily realize that there you get all of this stuff in the frame. And the way that the, the you know usually special effects shots are not shot full frame like that but things are masked off so if you watch the movie with the masking completely off and you didn't see like that you know we we, we see uh in our minds like the the director or the cinematographer and we see that box that we that they're framing towards right but you get all that shit around the side and you know obviously if you see this on video or whatever you're not going to ever see that but if you you can take that masking off. You can take that off of either the, the, the projector or the actual mask around the, the screen. And there's all this shit that's going on. And so finally I realized, oh no, my friend wasn't full of shit. He actually did see this with people's sleeves and arms and all this stuff. 
And yeah, I can't imagine liking this movie whatsoever if I were to see Jim Henson's arm <laughs> operating Jen. So I, I almost wish I could see it that way sometimes. It's kind of like how I always wanted to see, you know, the Planet of the Apes movies, the new ones with just Andy Serkis and not any of the actual apes themselves. I just want to see those movies sometimes. But, you know, obviously at the end of the day, you kind of want to see it the way that it was meant to be seen. It might have some sort of uh, postmodernist appeal, you know, the fact that you can see the puppetry behind it. It's an Avenue Q type of thing. <laughs> see all those people following behind the Skeksis and they're operating all of those remote controls and all that stuff. My God, to watch the making of stuff, it's just like, oh, my God, there were like six people operating one one Skeksis. You know, and to, when they all run over to take the Chamberlain's clothes off. It was just like a whole army of people moving, you know, scattering really quickly, trying to operate them. Yeah. Well, and what struck me was how difficult it was to control the mystics that they said in order to do it, you essentially had to walk on your haunches with your arm extended to operate the head. And even Jim Henson could only maintain that position for a couple seconds before it just became too hard to do. And then you start if you watch the film with that, you realize how little the uh, a shot will be of the mystics before they'll cut to something else. And it was because they could only operate these giant puppets for very limited time. There's one shot that's in this movie that always amazes me. And I think it was really like the money shot for this, which was to see the set that the mystics were on and to see the mystics themselves and the way that we kind of are down in the valley and then move up and you see the one that's really close to the camera moving towards us. So I think we see like three planes of action and three different mystics in the frame at the same time. And that is just one of the best shots in this movie because you get to see the mystics in action and see them in different you know stages. And yeah, just that I never realized that a lot of these puppets, I mean, both mystics and uh, Skeksis, that it was one hand operating the head, one hand operating the left arm, and then sometimes there would be a guy behind that guy and operating the right hand. So the right hand literally doesn't know what the left hand is doing at times other than through the mm. monitor work. Just amazing that they were able to pull this shit off. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the big wow sequences for me was the uh, introduction of Agra's lab and that gigantic swirling mechanism and it's just one of those times where you have to take a step back and realize they built that that exists in a physical plane and it's just so fantastic to see it in motion you know the mechanisms of it if you were to break it down is relatively simple you know you just have these these uh, moving parts but just the scale of it and the way that it's shot i mean it's for all i know they could have just used a miniature of it but it just feels so huge I think um, Fry described the film as having gravity because it's practical effects. And the thing I love about The Dark Crystal and a lot of these fantasy films that kind of exploded at this time, it's that little pocket post-Star Wars where practical effects films just really took off and you had about a decade where they went absolutely crazy with it in horror in fantasy in children's films so you had films like labyrinth and never-ending story and it was all these like huge massive creations and the dark crystal is kind of at the start of that and it was like a really really magical time because even when you see these films i think it stands out really well actually compared to some of the some of the other films but 
you know, I think people don't appreciate just the fact that when they were making this up on the spot, they were solving problems and saying, how do we make this? How do we, you know, and they were learning as they were going, going along, like you said earlier, Mike, they had to keep redesigning the creatures because they just weren't practical. They didn't work. And then, and then so it was all this innovation that just that becomes part of the magic for me, too. The other side of it, the side that you don't see that you can imagine is there that your friend accidentally saw that is just as magical as the world they create on screen because that's just the sheer ingenuity and the craft and the work that went into that you just don't see that anymore with with digital artists they were just i mean there's a whole different thing to, to digital effects obviously there's an artistry to that but this is a whole different scale you've got people crawling around on the floor and doing god knows what really kind of suffering for their art which you you don't necessarily get today which i i really miss i think especially in fantasy films when i was a kid i was talking about watching shows on Nickelodeon when it was kind of that early incarnation and they didn't quite know what they were. They were kind of getting into the you can't do that on television business, but a lot of people forget that that's where the slime comes from. Uh, but they were just trying to fill the air sometimes and they had a program called Standby Lights Camera Action with Leonard Nimoy hosting it and they only had, I mean, it felt like and I'm probably wrong. There's probably some nerd out there that can tell me you know, exactly how many episodes of this show that there were. But it felt like they only had about five episodes. And they would just play them over and over and over again. So I got to see the behind the scenes on the like the goldfish scene in Monty Python and the Meaning of Life. I don't know how many times. But one of those other segments that I saw a ton was the Landstriders. And to see this, how they put together the Landstriders and to know that it was, and I can't say it was simple because you have people hunched over wearing stilts on their hands and on their feet. And to see just the posture that these people would have to hold as Landstriders and then the way that they kind of costumed to them was absolutely fascinating and then watching again one of the other makings of yesterday to know that they had a crane up above them with a safety wire and that you don't I, I mean as far as i see i don't see the safety wire so and i don't think they're necessarily painting out the safety wire like they would do today digitally but back then you know to have these guys jumping on stilts and have these big safety wires and cranes it was just like wow just just for a what is it, maybe five, ten minute scene of them going across on these Landstriders and the Landstrider fight with the Gartham. It was an amazing amount of work to do that. And just, again, that physicalness of having people in the suits, but they don't necessarily look like people in suits and just that otherworldliness. And speaking of otherworldly, I did mention the Gartham and those Gartham, when I was a kid, the Gartham scared the shit out of me because they were just... I mean, the worst elements of crabs and spiders and cockroaches that you could possibly get with that horrible noise behind them just really sketch me the fuck out. Oh, hell yeah. When they're when Jen drops into the pit of the Gartham and you just get that slow fade in of their eyes and then their bodies and you start hearing the skittering. That's nightmare fuel right there. And while, yes, nowadays you can look at the costume and see the seams, as it were, you can certainly see 
the two major trunks at the bottom where clearly the legs of the performers are at. As a child, the illusion is absolutely complete, and you can still appreciate what they are and how they were constructed to this day. And that extends to so much of this film, the the sheer craft that went into it. And it's one of those where, while there is rightfully so a great deal of appreciation for the period of of a practical effects-driven film, the ones that really stand out are ones where the craftsmanship was given the room and the platform that it needed in order to complete the illusion. One of the great things about practical effects, or one of the more interesting things, is that oftentimes they only really work when when filmed a certain way. And smart filmmakers, either, either because they had total faith in the, their special effects team or they had a background in special effects themselves, they knew to accommodate the effect in how they constructed the film. Always shoot it from the angle where it was going to be the most impactful. Take the time you needed in order to get the effect across. And I think that's one of the big things that separates the those exemplars of that particular art form. It, it differentiates it from what exists today digitally, because I think that some people are emboldened by the freedom that digital effects give and thus don't necessarily allow the artists working on it the time they need, the space they need in order to pull off a convincing special effect. It's the old idea that you can change it just by, you know, a couple keystrokes where that's not entirely the case. And any great special effects artist working today will actually tell you that. And so many of the, the terrible uses of CGI's are due to those compromises, are due to those people saying it's, well, it's good enough. Whereas if you go back to this practical effects period exemplified by the Dark Crystal, these were craftspeople. They knew that exactly how they needed to do it and they weren't necessarily beholden to a director saying, uh, I want to I want to shoot at this particular angle, regardless of the fact that that would completely ruin the effect. You know what I mean? Right. So then you end up with Mark Ruffalo in the Hulkbuster suit at the end of the Avengers Infinity War. <laughs> this is true. Or the uh, the uh, disappearing mustache from superman in justice league i like films where they are using digital effects but you can't tell they're using digital effects like like david fincher where you're just like wow that was a digital effect yeah i had no idea don't bring attention to the effect you know and that's the thing with with this film is they're not necessarily bringing attention to the effects that much some of the most simplistic things are the best effects like the draining of the podling is one of those the scariest scenes and it's basically a puppet where there was air puffed into it and they are letting the air out so it's sinking down and then they inject of all things milk into its eyes so that it gets that milky whiteness to it that was terrifying to me as a kid to see the life draining out of this little, you know, potato puppet. Even the the most simple puppet that gets a great deal of screen time in this, one of my favorites, Fizzgig. He has so much personality in him that you you would completely ignore the fact that he is arguably the most simple puppet they have on display in this movie. I mean, he's literally a Muppet. He has a mouth flap. That's it. When he throws his little shit fit, that is probably my favorite moment of the film. See, the podlings broke my heart, Mike. I, I didn't find that scary. That really upset me when I was a kid because they're just amazing. They're, like, so cute. just And they're quite simple as well, but they're just so cute. And see that that poor little thing having the life sucked out of him, that, was, that really upset me when I was a kid. That had me in tears. 
it's nice that they set that up so we see how horrible that is and then when they put Jen inside of that who is you know we probably empathize with a little bit more it's just like no no I don't want to see that happen to her and I like that after she goes through that that experience that she carries that with her like in later on in the film when they're healing the crystal that she still doesn't look right and I'm glad that they didn't just go back to the original Jen puppet yep and she still manages to uh, accomplish more in that climax than actually Jen. So once again, Kira is the true hero of this film. And I think the only thing that they weren't happy with when it came to the final product of The Dark Crystal was that ending. And the way that they had to rely on more, quote-unquote, modern special effects. And I can totally see what they're talking about when it comes to like the use of the green screen to have those uh the Urskex or whatever they call them the combination of the uh, the mystics and the skexies together the way that jen looks and the way that augur is in the background and stuff they, it doesn't necessarily look right compared to the rest of the movie um i like the design of the finalized creatures together but the, it doesn't it doesn't fit together as well as some of the other things in the film. The only thing that I found curious about the design of the Urskex is unlike the Mystics and also like the Skeksis, why didn't they have four arms? They don't need four arms now because they're perfect. That's, <laughs> that's why. Don't question these things. Yeah, if you question them, they'll rip you apart like they ripped apart uh, Kate Blanchett at the end of uh, The Crystal Skull. <laughs> That totally, of them all standing around, that always reminds me, or when I saw uh, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, I was like, oh, it's the end of the Dark Crystal. But I like the end of the Dark Crystal a lot more. Yeah. Compromised as it is and how, and also crudely composited as it is, it's still a great effect to it. The Dark Crystal, speaking of some of the optical effects they use, they also had one of my favorites of this period where they would use the chemical effect in order to, in order to make the rolling clouds that is something that is so typically 80s, but I absolutely love the look of it. That looks really nice. I love the miniature of, well, and it's not that miniature. It's a, it's fucking eight feet tall. The castle and the landscape around the castle at the beginning and at the end looks fantastic. That castle, for whatever reason, always reminds me of the, the floating castle in Krull. And some of the elements, I don't know if it was just that it was around the same time, and so they kind of get mixed up in my mind. But there are moments in here that remind me of Crawl, or Crawl reminds me of this. And I think it was just that there were two really great fantasy films coming out around the same time. See, I always had it very much connected to the castle shown in the canon release of Masters of the Universe, but I had a very unsophisticated cinematic upbringing as a child. And Kat's like, it reminds me of Howl's Moving Castle. No, I was going to say it reminds me of Skeletor's castle, actually. <laughs> I'm not alone. Albert Pune strikes again. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Brian J. Jones, the author of Jim Henson, A Biography. And we'll be back after these brief messages. Hello, I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and aftermoviediner.com. Now, where's that bottle? <laughs> 
Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah. I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No. Okay, uh, dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, he's, right? He's in a yeah, million the bushy movies. eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes have a mustache. Yeah, well, that, but but he shaved. Well, he, no, he did. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen the, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. <laughs> to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies. How about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. Brian, how long ago was the Jim Henson biography that you wrote? Uh, It came out on Jim's birthday in 2013, so five years now. And how long did it take to put together? Uh, About... About five years total from the time I initially uh, kind of approached the family about it to, you know, then they finally, it took about two years to get an okay uh, out of the Hensons. And then from there, it was about another two and a half years to write it. So it was about five years all total. And why Jim Henson? What made you choose him as a subject? You know, I I wish I had a super cool answer for that. Um, I really don't. I mean, Jim, you know, Jim, Jim's in my wheelhouse because I'm, I'm, as I was saying, I'm, I'm Sesame Street Generation 1.0 because I was two when Sesame Street debuted and I was nine when The Muppet Show debuted. Like Jim, Jim was always there. Like, I, you know, I, we were the first generation that didn't have to wait for him to come along. My mother used to tell stories about uh, watching Rolf the Dog on Jimmy Dean and I would get very annoyed with her and tell her that there were no Muppets back in the old days. Uh, it turned out she was right, of course. But um, but my generation was the first one to have him from start to finish from the time we were kids till the time we were grownups and then died actually right as we were going out in the world. So it was almost like this beautiful, tragic arc. So it made perfect sense in that regard. Um, you know, I'd always I'd, I'd always been a Jim Henson fan. I'm not one of these people that you can put a random Muppet in front of me and I can tell you it's Muppet Show episode, you know, 341, you know, 304 and so on. But um, but you know, I, I'd been a big fan of the book of Muppets and men. That was a book that I checked out of the library constantly and read constantly. And, and I think the cover fell off of it. The one I checked out of the library in Albuquerque so many times, uh, cause I always loved the behind the scenes stuff. But anyway, that's a roundabout way of saying that I'm, I, the way I got to him was just, you know, very, uh, non-dramatic. I somehow ended up being on his, and this is about 2008, and I was trying to think of my, you know, what did I want to do next after my first book, which was Washington Irving, which is a topic I have to explain to people who that is. I don't have to do that with Jim. And I was on I was on his Wikipedia page and I had read something on the Wikipedia page and just went down to the bottom to see, you know, but as I found out later, Muppet fans are great about citing stuff. And so I went down to the bottom of his Wikipedia page and there wasn't everything that was cited was things like Jim Henson, the works and of Muppets and magic, of course, and Jim Henson designs and doodles. And everything was about the work, uh, you know, which is great. 
but there wasn't a biography of Jim. I called my agent and I said, you know, what do you think of Jim Henson as, as a possible topic? Um, and he loved it. And I said, but so this was 2008, you know, Jim had been dead 18, 20 years at that, that time. And I thought, well, I can't believe there's not a Robert Caro out there or somebody who's been researching this book for 20 years and, you know, is, is getting ready to do it. And so we, po- you know, did a little poking around and asking people and look and finding going through the list of books that it sold and nobody was doing it. So I ended up approaching the Jim Henson legacy um, through at that time, the, the executive director was Arthur Navelle who was a, a lovely, lovely guy and who was Jim's publicist when Jim was alive. And so um, when I approached Arthur about it, I made, you know, I, I sent this long email that I had nurtured for a million years before I finally sent it. And, um, and just sort of, you know, explained to Arthur that it was, that it was time to do this, you know, that, that they, you know, Jim had been dead almost 20 years and um, Bernie Brillstein had just died and Jerry Joel had died. And uh, I found out later, although I didn't know this at the time, but Jane was ill so, you know, it was, it was, it was time to start getting people on the record. And Arthur, as a press guy, really got that. Um, and really kind of helped me run the traps through the, you know, the internal politics. And, you know, you've got five children and the widow, which, you know, everybody's got, got their own, you know, their own angle on things. So, you know, it was just getting to know the family, letting them know me, letting them see that I wasn't really up to no good, uh, in this project. And, uh, but, it, but it took a long time again, because you do, you have, you have five kids and, you know, you've got to, you've got to talk with everybody and explain to everybody and lots of emails. And finally, what I did was I wrote a sample chapter, uh, about Jim's time in Washington, DC, um, when he, cause he, he went to college in up in Hyattsville, Maryland and went to, went to college at the university of Maryland. And his first job in TV was when he was still in high school. And so I, uh, so I pulled every article I could find. I went to the Library of Congress. It's so nice that when you live in the D.C. area, your local library can actually be the Library of Congress. And, uh, and I just pulled everything I could find from every Virginia newspaper and through the Washington Post and the Washington Times and uh, all these articles about him. And I pulled a, you know, kind of a history of television and, and, and wrote a sample chapter just on Jim as a teenager going to uh, you know, answering an ad in the newspaper and going down to WTOP and applying to be a puppeteer. And that was that was the the moment I kind of knocked it open. I, when I sent that to the family, I think that was the moment they thought, okay, well, we we see how you would do this. You're trying to let you know Jim tell the story, and you're you know you're you're kind of stepping back and you know telling the story through through the people around him rather than you know having some agenda uh, and trying to put your own spin on everything. So so once that happened, uh, that chapter really uh, you know that 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 finally gave me the yes I needed to move forward. And then once I had them, they're fantastic. You know, they, because the one thing I really wanted was their, their private archives because Jim's archives aren't located at, you know, university of Maryland. They're not at the university of Connecticut where the puppetry school is. Um, you know, they're not in Leland, Mississippi. They're privately held inside the offices of the Jim Henson company. So you have to have their permission to be there and to access them. And that to me was really key to being able to write that book was having those archives because Jim wasn't this guy that sat down for a lot of interviews. There weren't a lot of interviews uh, on the record. There, you know, there were, there were, I think one really long one that, um, oh gosh, what's her name? Judy Davis, not Judy. Anyway, had, had done, there was that, that was it, but Jim didn't sit for interviews a lot and, you know, died at 53. So I really needed those archives. I thought to be able to do this right. And once, once I had the Hensons, uh, you know, behind me, that really let me have access to a lot of those resources I needed to do that book right. I've only had one dealing with the Henson Company and the Henson family over the years, and they were generous to a fault. They were fantastic to deal with. Was that kind of your experience as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, when it's it's 
tough, I think, when you've got this, you know, stranger coming in who wants to, you, you know, you know, embed himself in your private business, uh, not just your business, but your private lives. I met with Lisa Henson out in out in, you know, her, their offices in, in Hollywood and talked with her. And uh, I went to brunch with Jane and Cheryl one day. And, you know, so it's just one. It was just a matter of, of just kind of sitting down and, and getting to meet them and again, letting them see that I, you know, I, I wasn't up to no good with this. And, you know, and so I, I think it was, you know, when, even once the book, <clears throat> I, I, I made sure I kept them informed every step of the way. Um, it wasn't an authorized biography in the sense that they didn't um, they didn't have final edits. But but I took their input very seriously and I tried to keep them informed every step of the way. I sent them every draft as I went through it. And I'm glad I did because there was one time I had a major chronological error that they all caught. Um, and there were times when they'd say, ah, you know, I'm not, that's, that's not exactly right. And, or, you know, I, I know I said that, but that's, that's your, your, I didn't actually mean it that way. Can we please try that one again? So it was really, it was really helpful to, you know, to make sure I brought them along with me the entire time. Uh, and I think they appreciated that, but again, it had to be really hard because they, they knew the stories of, of Jim and his, you know, infidelities to Jane. Everybody knew it. It was, it was a, not a big secret. But I, it had to be hard, again, to have this stranger come to you and tell them their story in third person. Um, I know that had to be really hard for them. And to their credit, they, you know, they, they were they were great about it. And again, I know that had to be very hard for them. What ended up getting him into puppetry? It's not like there's a lot of famous puppeteers that I can think of until the Muppets came along. Of course, there was Edgar Bergen and there were some other Kukla, Fran and Ali and those kind of puppets and puppeteers. But it wasn't until the Muppets, and I'm pretty much, I imagine, around the same age that you are, where I grew up with Sesame Street, into the Muppet Show, into Fraggle Rock, you know, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, you know, all of those things. So I wasn't necessarily exposed to that earlier version, you know, maybe like, you know, Captain Kangaroo, those kind of things. But it, it seems like a kind of a, you know, it's a it's a tough racket, right? Yeah, I mean, to people age, uh, you know, the Muppets are what puppets always looked like on TV. Um, you know, we didn't know anything different. It's interesting with Jim because we there's this sort of urban legend almost about him um, getting into TV and, and puppetry on TV. And everybody thinks, oh, you know, well, he, he had to have been into puppets as a kid. And so, and that's that's just not true. Um, Jim, you know, you read stories about Steven Spielberg and he's the guy's got, you know, Super 8 film in his blood. You know, he was filming his trains crashing each other. He knew he wanted to be a filmmaker from the time he was seven years old. Jim wasn't one of these guys that at age seven is like, oh, God, I love puppets. I'm going to play with puppets. I want to be the world's best puppeteer. Jim didn't really have any interest in puppetry. Now, he loved Edgar Bergen, a ventriloquist on the radio. There's that. Remember the great line in uh, in uh, Radio Days where, you know, Woody Allen's uncle is, is yelling at his aunt because she's laughing at Charlie McCarthy on the radio. And he's like, it's a ventriloquist on the radio. But, you know, they, everybody loved Charlie McCarthy. Jim loved Charlie McCarthy, but wasn't, you know, thinking, oh, I want to be, you know, Edgar Bergen is my idol. And I want to I be a puppeteer. Jim loved television, television. Jim got television probably around 1949 or 1950 when he would have been, you know, 13, 14 years old. And living in D.C., even in the early days of TV, there were, you know, there were a whopping five channels to watch, which was a lot in the early days of TV. And Jim watched everything he could in D.C. He was fascinated by TV. I always like it to early days of cable. Remember when we remember in the early days of cable, we would actually you would literally have a box attached with the cable to your TV. 
and you would like and you had all the buttons you would push and, and when you first got cable you would shotgun through all of you know you'd have like 37 channels and shotgun through and watch you know crappy public access i mean you would just watch everything you were fascinated by cable and jim was this way with tv he was fascinated by tv he, he loved the idea that you know you could be watching a live broadcast and what you're sitting there in hyattsville maryland watching on tv was happening right that moment in new york city jim jim loved that so jim loved tv and wanted to be on TV more than anything in the entire world. And when he was a senior in high school, um, and he and in high school he was, you know, he, was, he did mo- like things like set design and things like that. Again, he wasn't he wasn't into puppetry, he wasn't really into performing, um, but was kind of an artist and really wanted to use that to get into TV. Thought it might be by being, a, you know, behind the scenes and building sets. And so he was watching, you know, the Help Wanted ads and saw an ad in the Washington D.C. newspapers from WTOP, our local CBS affiliate. Uh, that was looking for, as the ad said, young people to um, to perform puppets for a weekly Saturday morning TV show. And Jim, who didn't know anything about puppets and hadn't played with puppets and didn't want to be the greatest puppeteer in the world, went down to his, his library. And this is a pretty astounding story that this Hyattsville library, or I might even have been at Northwestern High School, uh, Northwest, not Northwestern, um, checked out two books on puppetry um, and sort of in the span of two weeks taught himself the basics of puppetry and, and how to build puppets. And his, his grandmother was a, a really wonderful seamstress and uh, a craftsman. And so he knew how to sew. And so he, he had, um, he, he built two puppets. We're not sure what both of them were. We know what one of them was. Um, but he built these puppets. He, he said there were two birds and a rat. So probably three birds, three puppets. And um, and went down to WTOP with one of his friends uh, and auditioned at TOP and got the job. And that got Jim on TV. And that was really all he thought puppetry was for. He just wanted to get his foot. For him, puppetry, I, I called the type, the chapter of this even in, in the biography, was it was a means to an end. It was a means to an end to get on TV. And that was really all Jim wanted was to be on TV. Uh, and once he got in the doors of Puppeteer, I think his intention then was to learn everything he could about, you know, camera work and, and you know, set design and, things like that, and start, you know, worm, getting getting inside TV, uh, probably in the technical department. But it turned out that once he started performing puppets, um, he just he ended up being so good at it. And I and I think the reason that he was so great at puppetry is because he wasn't this kid who had grown up wanting to be a puppeteer and, you know, reading everything he could about puppetry. So he didn't really know what the rules were for puppetry. So, so I think that's one of the things that made him an extraordinary puppeteer. He, he figured out, he, he did two really amazing things for puppetry on TV that again, people our age and younger now take for granted because this is the way puppets have always looked on TV. But, you know, before Jim came along, a puppet show on TV, something like Kukla, Fran and Ollie, which is one of the biggest shows in the world, would film the puppet theater. You know, it was, he would stand behind the, you know, you'd film the stage with the curtain in front of it. And, uh, and, uh, Bert Hilsrum would stand behind it and poke the puppets through it and perform. And they would actually film the puppet theater. Jim figured out that if you're on television, the four sides of the TV screen are your puppet theater. You don't need that, that puppet theater. You can throw the puppet theater out. Um, which again, to us makes perfect sense, but nobody had really thought of that. So that's Jim sort of finding a solution hidden in plain sight. So now you can use all four sides. You can raise the puppet from the bottom of the screen. You can come in from the top. You can rush the screen. You can back into a shot. You can do, you, you know, the entire universe is now open to your performance. And the other thing he figured out was that if that's what the audience is seeing, then you as the performer need to be able to see it. And this is the way the Muppets performers still perform to this day is you just put a monitor on the floor so you can see exactly what the camera is seeing. 
And so you can watch your performance in real time and not just, you know, it's a matter not just of keeping your head out of the shot, but, you know, you can adjust it and make sure the eye line is lining up. And if you're talking to another character, the characters are looking at each other. Muppet performers are never looking over their heads. They're always watching that monitor down on the ground. So that's two innovations Jim brought to puppets on television almost immediately. And again, they make perfect sense. They're obvious solutions to a problem. Nobody had thought of that because, again, Nobody had really put puppets on TV the way Jim had. Jim wanted his puppets to have mouths that opened. You know, it wasn't going to be Kukla, Fran, and Ollie where Kukla's got the, you know, the painted on mouth. Jim wanted the mouths opening and you've been working and he wanted the eyes to look. They were focused and actually looking at something. Jim was building puppets for television, which nobody was really doing before that. The thing that astounded me when I started to look into Jim Henson a few years ago was not necessarily those early days of doing the puppetry, but the short films. You know, seeing the cube was something which isn't necessarily a short film that's, you know, on video and everything, but seeing robot, seeing timepiece, and seeing the cube really made me appreciate him as a filmmaker. And I'm curious how those kind of came to be. Jim viewed puppetry as just one of the many things that he wanted to do. Jim considered himself an artist. Um, you know, Jim considered himself a filmmaker. He considered himself an animator. Um, Jim wasn't just a puppeteer. And, you know, to him, the Muppets were just one of the many things that he saw himself as doing. So so you, you've zeroed right in on probably the decade in Jim's career that I love maybe the most because it's so diverse. It's so interesting. It's so different. And again, it's because, you know, he's he's in his in his actually in his 30s in the 60s. And um and he's trying to figure out, you know, what exactly he's going to do. He's moved his company to New York. The company is Muppets Incorporated. You know, you know, and the Muppets are his bread and butter because he's making commercials with the Muppets. So they're really paying his bills. And uh, and that really bought him his artistic freedom. That's letting him do a lot of these really weird things. Um, so he's got his company in New York and he's, you know, he's making really interesting experimental films. And he's got a lot of really wild ideas. You know, one of the ideas that uh, he has at the time that I think that I love um, was he had an idea for something called Cyclia, which is sort of an adult nightclub, uh, adult meaning like for grownups. It wasn't just a bar. It was kind of like a, a club. And, you know, he had these really big ideas of having floors that, you know, were like plexiglass and you would project movies on the floors and you'd have lights that were timed. So they would sort of throb in time with the music. And, um, you know, you would have the walls would be maybe broken glass. And so when you project a movie on it, it would scatter and then you would, you know, every hour he envisioned having a woman lowered from the ceiling and a white leotard who would dance and they would project almost like a music video on her. It was this really wild sort of advanced thinking about entertainment. And part of the problem Jim had with it is the technology really wasn't there yet for him. He was a little, a little too far ahead of, the, of his time in that one. Um, but pursued that for a long time. I think he finally abandoned that project as, as late as like 1971 or something. So, you know, he's got that really interesting idea. And he's doing um, the Cube, as you mentioned, which it, 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 all, all listeners out here, you can go find it on iTunes. I think you look for it on on YouTube. It is spectacularly weird. It's like an avant-garde Twilight Zone episode, uh, and not a Muppet in sight. Uh, he did another documentary called Youth '68, kind of about the the rising youth movement, which he completed before everything went to hell in 1968. And part of it was I think Jim really loved the technology. There's a lot of chroma key in that. And, you know, he's using rock and roll music. And it's I think Jim was just interested in the technology. And so he's got interesting projects like that. Um, he had something called Timepiece, which was a 1965 seven-minute short film that he does, which is actually nominated for an Oscar. No Muppets in that either. So, so Jim's doing a lot of really different 
artistic sort of avant-garde things. He's pitching constantly a Broadway show with puppets in it, where the puppeteers are standing actually out on the stage, maybe in black, but in plain view of the audience and performing and singing songs and lyrics for these songs. And people are telling him no one's going to want to see a puppet show where you can see the puppeteer. So, again, you know, he's light years ahead of everybody. This is what we do with Avenue Q and the Lion King now all the time. So Jim's got these big ideas that just people aren't ready for or the technology isn't there with him. But Jim's company, if you go look at the ads he's running in the New York newspapers at that time, they say we're Muppets Incorporated and we do things like – Timepiece, an Academy Award nominated movie. And we do things like The Cube, which is a made for TV movie on NBC. And we do documentaries like Youth 68. Uh, and we also do puppets. So, it, you know, it's the last thing on his list because the, in the 60s, Jim again is still really trying to figure out, you know, what's he going to be? What's going to define him as an artist? What's going to define him as a creative person? And these are all these different things he's doing. But what finally happens in the 60s, is, as we all sort of know, the exclamation point at the end of the sentence for the 1960s is Sesame Street comes along and sort of pulls him in that direction. But in the 60s, he, he still doesn't know that yet. So it's a really exciting time for him and his career and him as an artist. And I think even just as people who like to you know watch projects Jim's doing, they're all really interesting. You know, Again, not a lot of Muppets and a lot of projects, but everything's constantly interesting and constantly challenging and very different than what you expect when you hear the name Jim Henson. The timepiece in particular, even among the family, uh, is a very sort of divisive uh, thing. Some of them love it, some of them hate it. So you, even in, even inside the company, the, you know, the, the opinions are split on timepiece. I love showing segments of timepiece when I talk about Jim because you know people haven't seen anything like it before. It's just it's a really fascinating, exciting period in his development. Well, the paperwork explosion is another one where I mean I still quote from that. People should think. And machines should do the work. Uh, yeah, he was doing a lot of, um, you know, uh, training videos for IBM. That's where he met David Laser, and he was using Rolf the dog for a lot of that. Rolf was was almost was almost bigger than Kermit the Frog in the '60s. Rolf was kind of his go-to Muppet, and I think part of the reason he was is because Rolf had hands you could pick things up with. <laughs> Kermit doesn't. So for training videos and in business videos like Rolf was doing for IBM, he could pick up a guitar. He could pick up, you know computer tapes and things like that. So Rolf was really one of his go-to Muppets in the 60s. Was that one hand working the mouth, one hand working the arm kind of thing? Yes, uh, what they call a live hand Muppet. A puppet like Ernie, for example, and Rolf, they all work the same way. For a puppeteer, most of whom are right-handed, your right hand is operating the mouth, your left hand is using the left hand, and then the right hand of the puppet, generally you have another puppeteer who then sticks their right hand inside the glove of the puppet and operates the right hand. Um, that's actually still the way, um, today when you start on Sesame street or start working with them up, but you begin your career generally by what they call right handing, uh, which is where you sort of learn, uh, Frank Oz said the trick to right handing is to not do too much. <laughs> it's true. Um, and what I always tell little kids when I talk about Jim and I should never do this because then it's just chaos for, you know, a minute and a half is I always say, you know, turn to the person next to you and clap, clap your hands together, but you use your right hand and have them use their left hand. And, you know, watching them, watching them even trying to just line it up. And, of course, like I said, disaster for a minute. But, um, you know, it's just it, there, there's a real there's a real um, there's a real choreography needed there to make your hands work. Um, there's some wonderful moments when he was doing the Jimmy Dean show when you can watch him, you know, trying trying to function with a straw hat. You know, <laughs> one hand's trying to trying to pick it up and the other hand's trying to put it on his head. And it's it's real. It's, it's a, like I said, it's, it's a it's a it's a tight wire at times. Well, you mentioned Frank Oz and I'm curious 
when does Frank Oz kind of come into the picture? So Frank Oz comes in, I can't remember the exact year, I want to say 1963 or so. Uh, and Frank is not Jim's first employee. His first employees, at least as far as Muppet performers, is uh, Jerry Nelson is one of his first performance. And Jerry Jewell is actually brought in initially as a writer. Uh, or, I'm sorry, as a performer. But as he says, when, once he watched, once he saw Frank Oz perform, he knew he had to figure out something else to do or he was going to be extinct. Uh, so Jerry Joel becomes Jim's writer of preference and would be for the next 30 years. Uh, and he's also got a, a puppet builder named Don Saline with him who's building. Those. So it's that's primarily the Henson Company in 1963. It's Jim, Jerry Nelson, Don Saline, and then Frank Oz comes in. But Frank Oz comes in at age 19. Uh, it's his first job right out of high school. Moves to New York City. Jim had seen him performing at a sort of a puppet convention <laughs> uh, out in California the year before and tried to even get him then. And his parents, who were also puppeteers, said, uh, you you know, he's got to finish high school first. <laughs> so so as soon as Frank finished high school, he comes out to to New York City, the big city. This kid from Oakland, California, moves to New York City, age 19, uh, starts working for the Jim Henson Company. And his first job is right handing Rolf the dog uh, on the Jimmy Dean show. That's, you know, he, he sort of trained on the job. He talked about sitting in the Henson offices and Jim's wife, Jane, who's a spectacularly good puppeteer as well. Um, she, uh, Frank credits her with teaching him how to uh, lip sync. You know, he said they would, you know, put on records and stand in front of a mirror and work the puppet to try to make sure the mouth was lip syncing correctly because, you know, it's it's more it's 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 tougher than you would think. And it's you know, you don't open you don't move your hand up. You move your thumb down to open the mouth. Otherwise, the head looks like it's tilting back. So it's all these little nuances um, that you have to learn. And so Frank was sort of, you know, it was on the job training. And Frank didn't do voices for a long time um, because he said he was terrified of doing voices. And Jim did most of the voices and would record tracks and they would lip sync to Jim's pre-recorded tracks and so on. But that's Frank Oz's first job. 19-year-old Frank Oz comes in right-handing for Rolf the Dog. And that's how he's cutting his teeth with the Muppets. Can you tell me a little bit about the land of Gorch? Because as far as I know, that kind of is one of the stepping stones to get to the Dark Crystal. <laughs> yeah. When, when they're putting together what becomes Saturday Night Live, um, there were a number of must-haves that that NBC has in mind. They said you must have, you know, Lorne Michaels producing it, and you must have Albert Brooks making your short films, uh, and you must have Jim Henson uh, involved as well. So this is about 1974 or so, and you have to remember Jim at this time. I mean, Sesame Street's on the air by now, and Jim's been doing these sort of pseudo pilots for what would become the Muppet show. He's done at least two of them by this point, none of which is, has landed. Um, but you know, the Muppets, the Muppets are big. They're on variety shows all the time. And Jim's on Johnny Carson and he, you know, any variety show at the time, Jim's on it. So, so he's a, he's a name to get. And so they want names for, for um, Saturday Night Live. And it also doesn't hurt that Jim's agent is Bernie Brillstein, who ends up representing pretty much everybody on Saturday Night Live you've ever heard of. Um, so Jim's brought in to do short pieces on Saturday Night Live. And he's basically given carte blanche in a way, um, you know, you create the, the setup. So Jim goes back to his workshop and he, you know, he's scribbling on pieces of paper, you know, what is, you know, where does this take place? Is it a psychiatrist's office? You know, he's trying to figure out what the, what the conceit is. And he finally ends up on this, this land of gorge concept, which is never really that well defined, which ends up being, I think, one of the problems with it. He wants to do something very different because this is, remember, this is Saturday Night Live, which doesn't exist until 1975. 
It's on very, you know, very 1130 at night. So Jim wants to do something very different. And people right now know Jim and the Muppets for Sesame Street and Ernie and Bert and Kermit the Frog. And and Jim decides to build some Muppets that don't look anything like what he's done before. It's a real creative leap for him. And he brings in this really great artistic director named Michael Frith who just draws beautifully and is brilliant. And, um, and Jim, and Jim goes to him and basically, uh, is, is trying to articulate to him what he's trying to do. He says, um, I want mossy, think mossy, you know, <laughs> not, not terribly descriptive. Um, and they're going to use taxidermied eyes in these figures in these characters. So, you know, they're actually giving them glass eyes. So and so, you know, they come up with these, these characters for the land of Gorge, um, that again, don't look like anything he's ever really done, but you're right. These are the, this is the, the ancestors of what becomes the dark crystal right there on screen in in in, uh, in the land of gorge and the issue they had on there is jim jim always really loved the character building the character design and kind of the world building something like land of gorge he didn't well define and they had a big problem in that they weren't permitted to write the sketches for the muppets on there they had to be written by snl writers because of the union and the writers don't necessarily understand what the rules of this world are because Jim hasn't really articulated. We know we've got these weird things in a land of gorge and there's volcanoes smoking. We've got this sort of stupid king and his wife. And then we've got this maybe this kind of gesture. So the writers are trying to figure it out uh, and not having a lot of luck. And there's, you know, there's drug jokes in it and there's drinking jokes in it because it is Saturday Night Live. But the, the pieces don't necessarily work because, again, the writers aren't sure what to do with it. And so Jim and the Muppets are kind of struggling on here. They're trying to figure out what their place is. And, you know, Oz says something about, you know, they're, they're sort of an improv feel to the Muppets, which isn't what Saturday Night Life is. Even though SNL tends to take their players out of the improv, uh, it's a written comedy. And it, Oz said it wasn't a good, I think he said something like the DNA, it wasn't a good DNA fit. You know, the, the, there was a mismatch there. It didn't belong there. The writers did not like writing for the Muppets. They used to, you know, it, they would literally say whoever draws the short straw is writing the Muppet sketch. It usually ended up, believe it or not, being Al Franken wrote a lot of them. Michael O'Donoghue, you know, the brilliant writer for SNL, his famous quote is, um, I won't write for felt. So, uh, so, you know, you had writers who were fighting each other to not write the Muppet sketches. So the, so the Muppets were kind of stranded on that show. Nobody really wanted to write for them. Jim finally sort of wrestled control away at the last minute when he knew that they had the Muppet show and they were going to be able to take the Muppets off of Saturday Night Live. Jim's the one that sort of wrestled creative control back and, you know, off uh, under the radar, writes the final episodes that sort of give you a little closure to them. I mean, the puppet, they, they almost literally end up, you know, realizing their puppets are being put away in boxes is the way you exit the land of course finally on snl but it's it's a failed experiment but it was a worthwhile experiment because you know it's it's jim bringing a different style of building a different look to the to, to the muppet style that people hadn't seen before i mean I, again i remember watching land of gorge when I, it's probably inappropriate because i was what seven or eight when snl came on the air and i used to stay up late if steve martin was going to be on but i remember seeing you know the land of gorge and being told they were muppets and just wondering what you know actually sitting there going what in the heck is going on here this is to me it wasn't that interesting because i was waiting for ernie and bird who never showed up it's a very different look very but you know a, a creative victory but a uh, as far as jim's end of it on the building and the style of the muppets but just 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 bombed on snl we have had multiple muppet movies we're still having muppet movies these days and we had the original muppet movie back in 1979 but can you talk about the phenomenon that the Muppets were when the Muppet Show came out? The really interesting thing about the Muppet Show is that it people forget it took a while to find its audience. 
And it's a very different time in the 70s than it was now, like when they tried the reboot of the Muppets here a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, they took it off the air very quickly. And some of the Muppet performers I talked with said, you know, one of the luxuries Jim had that he that we all appreciated was that we actually had the luxury of time. They actually the Muppet show actually had a little bit of time to find its audience. And it, it actually caught on in in England very quickly. <clears throat> but um, yeah, the Muppet Show was one of those shows that it 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 was one of the first truly syndicated uh, TV shows. It was syndicated on on CBS uh, initially in 1976, and uh, I mean it just grew geometrically. It started off in you know five markets, and then it, it was in ten, and then it was in forty, and then I mean it. I I can't remember the numbers that finally ended up, but they you know the David Laser, Jim's producer, says something like uh, you know it's it's available in 205 markets and in 140 countries, and everybody was joking, you know, would, would snicker behind his back and say he was going to start claiming an audience larger than the population of the planet. Um, but it, but it truly was an international phenomenon. Um, it was filmed in London um, because part of Jim's deal was with uh, Lord Grade and ATV. Uh, in, the Muppet Show is is a British production. Um, and Jim had to move to London for five years and was filming the Mupp show at the ATV facilities there at Elstree, uh, across the street from where George Lucas was filming Star Wars, actually. Um, so so the Muppets are the, the Muppets actually land much quicker in England. Uh, they pick up their audience much quicker over in, over in the UK. Um, you know, they they talk about how everybody would would stop working and they would stand and watch the, all the TVs in the in the apartment store windows would be tuned to the Muppet show and people would be standing out in the street watching it. So it was it was it was huge Muppet mania almost immediately in the UK. Over here, it took a little bit. Um, they you know and it started off in New York and they would they would play uh, you know they could figure out which episode you want to run first because Jim tended to have a whole lot of episodes in the can ready to go and the markets could kind of figure out what they wanted to show. So it, it was a it was a show that sort of found its found its audience. Um, in the first season, you know, they really relied upon the goodwill of friends and clients of Jim's agent, Bernie Brillstein, to find people who wanted to appear on the show. Um, they would, you know, they were calling in favors. They weren't paying very much. And, you know, you had to come over and it was, you know, it was a week and you were done. But they took really good care of you when you came over to perform. And um, so so they, they would call in a lot of favors to get celebrities to appear on it. But within the next year, um, people were, you know, sending, you know, People are, are knocking on their door saying, please, can I be on the Muppet show? And and you have people pitching their clients to be on it and everybody saying, God, I promise they're a huge fan of the Muppets. Can we please get you know this person on the Muppet show? So it was one of these shows that built gradually, found its – it had a – they gave it a little bit of time, which again wouldn't happen nowadays. But if it, it, it built very gradually over sort of the first year and it ends up uh, I think in its second season winning the Emmy for Best Comedy. Um, just spectacular success very quickly. On it. And I think the reason it did is because Jim's instincts on The Muppet Show were correct all along. He'd been pitching it for about 10 years uh, and just kept telling people, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't a show for kids. It's a show for the family, but it's not necessarily kids. You know, you, adults can appreciate it. It's part of what made Jim's Sesame Street sketches work so well. It was aimed more at the adults than it was at the kids. Uh, and that's what made The Muppet Show work so well. I mean, it was it was genuinely funny and it it was aimed at at a higher audience. It wasn't necessarily aimed at a kid's audience. I think that surprised people. Um, but it also has a real sense of family to it. And I think that's one of the things people really responded to very strongly at The Muppet Show. But I mean, the biggest show in the world for five years, Jim could have done it probably as long as he wanted to. Uh, and he and he and he voluntarily took it off the air in 1981 
uh, to go off and continue to do movies. And it, typical of Jim, he said, it's a very nice show. Nice is a very Jim Henson word. It's a very nice show. And he, he takes off the air at the height of its powers. I mean, he could have really, I mean, he probably gone on another five or six years with that show at least. The Muppet Show was not necessarily aimed at children. But it seems like people were taken aback by the adult nature of the Dark Crystal, or is that just me looking backwards at the film? No, um, you're absolutely right, because you know, Dark Crystal is the film Jim wanted to make first. Um, when, when he got ready to make his movies, he wanted to, to come out with Dark Crystal right away. And uh, his producer, David Laser, and even Lord Grade were you know, kind of pulled him aside and said, you, 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 you know, go with the Muppets first, go with what people know. And even when he got ready to make the next movie, they said, you know, you need to do now you got to do the sequel to the Muppets. (laughs) So but Jim was, you know, Jim was really trying to Dark Crystal was a movie he was trying to make for a long time. And um, so after the success of the the first movie, he could he could put in production Dark Crystal. And when Dark Crystal for Jim, Dark Crystal was really about the world building. Jim loved the way that movie looked and he loved the ideas behind it. He loved building the creatures and he loved the mechanics, you know, the, the, the miniature motors that made mouths move or ears wiggle. Jim loved the technology in dark crystal. And when dark crystal arrived in theaters, the problem he had was it said, you know, Jim Henson's the dark crystal. And so you had people like me who was, I was 13 when dark crystal came out and I saw it in the theater and I, sat in the theater and was wondering, you know, where are the Muppets? This is, this is Jim Henson. It's sort of, you know, sort of the problem you have with Land of the Gorge, Land of Gorge. And poor Jim, when he's out promoting Dark Crystal, you know, he wants to go out and talk about all these brand new things he's doing and all this great new puppetry he's gotten and, and the technology behind it. First question he gets almost every time is where are the Muppets? Um, so, you know, we, and, and I throw myself into this. I was as much, I told Lisa Henson that said, I was part of your problem. We, as his audience, I don't think we're willing to let him grow up, or at least we didn't. Maybe we didn't want to grow up with him. But like, you know, Jim's really trying to do something new and different. And it's a very important project to him creatively. And, we're, you know, we as the Muppet fans are trying to drag him back to, you know, the, the safe, fun base of Fozzie and Kermit and Miss Piggy. And Jim's trying to, you know, grow and, and do push his boundaries and do new things. And it was just like people just weren't ready for him to do that. It's almost like he was a victim of his own success. Right. But, you know, in, but in a way, he had stereotyped himself without him doing that. We are the ones who stereotyped him. Jim never saw himself as the cutesy puppeteer. And that was actually one of his concerns when Sesame Street got so popular is, you know, here you come out of the 60s where he was doing all this really funky stuff. And now he's got to devote most of his time to Sesame Street. And now not only is he, you know, considered a puppeteer, he's considered a kid's puppeteer. I mean, that's one of the reasons he was really trying to push into a Muppet show pilot and did, I think land of Gorge, I think him doing land of Gorge was an intentional pushback against that reputation as children's puppeteer. He wanted people to know right away. I'm more than just that. But once he comes out with a, you know, a movie like dark crystal baffles people when that movie comes out. Well, it sounds like the movie studio itself didn't have much faith in the dark crystal either. They weren't sure what to do with it. You know, Jim, Jim had a, had a problem very early on with it. First of all, one of the things he envisioned with dark crystal, which again is very typical of Jim as an artist, you know, he loved that world building and he had built a language for all these creatures. They were speaking foreign languages and he, Lisa Hempson put it beautifully. She said, Jim pictured it almost like an opera where they would be speaking in these other languages for the entire movie with no sub, no subtitles. But the audience would understand what was going on because of the power of the performance. Very bold move. <laughs> um, 
And they, <clears throat> when they did their first test showing, the audience, you know, the audience was just baffled. Jim knew he had a problem right away. He knew he had to, you know, he knew he had to, to put in dialogue. He had to redub it. But that first premiere was just was just a disaster. And so, so from from day one, Jim knew he had a problem with it. And and the and the street, I think it's Universal. I think um, was losing faith in it. And uh, so Jim had to go back and recut it and had another showing and his notes in his uh, in his diary say something like um, a bit better. <laughs> you know, so so the next one he did better. But um, but, you know, he had really big, ambitious ideas for it. And uh, I don't think, you know, apart from just us as audience members, I don't think the, the studio knew exactly what to do. If they didn't know exactly what they had, uh, they weren't sure how to promote it, which is, again, why I think they were saying Jim Henson, Jim Henson, Jim Henson. And it was very different than anything Jim Henson had done. So so it was kind of a, a hot potato for, for the studio. They they uh, they they didn't know what they had. And beyond that, they didn't necessarily appreciate what they had. This was Frank Oz's first film as a director, and it's amazing to think that this was his first film as a director or co-director, I should say. How was that relationship when they were directing this? Well, you know, Jim is the one that approached Oz about being the co-director, and which Oz uh, thought was crazy. Oz said, you know, I, I don't know how to direct and, you know, I'm not really a director. And Jim said to him, I just think it would be better. Uh, and which Oz found very touching because Jim was just concerned about the work. He wasn't really concerned about his own ego in this one. He, you know, he wanted, Jim knew the way he wanted that movie to look. Um, he, you know, Jim knew what the movie was about and how it should look and how it should be played. And really, when you think about it, the only other person who probably spoke that language was Frank Oz. So it would make perfect sense to to bring Oz in as his you know collaborator on it, and Frank will say you know it was Jim's show. Jim was in charge, um, but you know I, they they relied on each other's strengths. You know Jim would say you go over here and you you know I'm going to train these performers on how to you know get down on their haunches and walk, and you go over there and direct you know this this sequence over here. So you know they they knew who was better suited for directing which sequences. What Oz said about Dark Crystal is it was just gigantic. It was a gigantic project especially when it's your first movie to direct. And they did have Gary Kurtz on as one of their producers who had, you know, produced Star Wars and American Graffiti and actually had produced most of Empire Strikes Back before he was dismissed. So this is a guy who kind of knows the ropes on big movies like that. So, you know, so Gary Kurtz has their back on this. But it's, you know, it was just, it was, it was Jim's generosity with, you know, knowing that he needed help on it. And also knowing the right person to bring in. And, and again, Oz will always say that it was all Jim. But I really, I mean, Oz, Oz was a critical part of bringing it together. An enormous amount of faith and trust uh, in that relationship. So Jim gets his start. He gets his start in 1955. He passes away in, what, 1990? So the Dark Crystal was kind of towards the end of his career, really. Well, I mean, Dark Crystal is, what, 82? So... You know, it was, it was, and, and after Dark Crystal, the, um, he he thought the major failing of Dark Crystal was that he <laughs> this is this is Jim's sort of inability to read the room, but uh, he he thought that the major failing of Dark Crystal was it didn't have any people in it, uh, and that's Labyrinth is sort of his effort to address what he saw as some of the shortcomings in Dark Crystal. I think Dark Crystal has problems beyond beyond the fact there are no people in it. Um, I, I think the I think the story uh, tends to be a little slow for people. Um, but Labyrinth is you know Jim's sort of good natured attempt to to rectify what he what he saw as the failings of Dark Crystal. One of them was he thought it needed a little bit of a sense of humor, uh, which which he brings to Labyrinth. Lab, Labyrinth has the same look 
in a way as Dark Crystal, but a different feel. So having, you know, having at least human leads in Labyrinth was was Jim trying to fix a problem that I don't think he necessarily had in Dark Crystal. But that's sort of where Labyrinth sort of spun out of that. And that's another one where Jim, you know, Jim was very interested in the world of Labyrinth and in the building and then in the look of that. That one probably even more than Dark Crystal is uh probably the closest a lot of people said that was sort of the closest film to Jim. Like that was another one that was, that one was probably more important to him than any of the other movies he'd done. Um, Dark Crystal, I think is really important to him's creative development as an artist because that's him getting everything on screen. Um, and what I always have to remind people when they watch Dark Crystal is to remember that there were, you know, we didn't have CGI yet. That time we were, it was getting there. There's a little bit of CGI in Labyrinth, but we didn't have CGI yet. You know, special effects weren't huge. You know, you had ILM doing stuff, but everything you see on screen in Dark Crystal exists. And that's what's a really incredible part of the accomplishment with it is, you know, people would say, were telling me that you would walk into a set on Dark Crystal and you would walk out of, you know, walk around the back of it and the set was finished. It, you wouldn't get in the back and it was just like two by fours. They said the set was finished all the way around. You could walk, walk through it like an entire room. Um, so it was a completely, you know, realized, built world everything existed which is which is as michael first said i think the astounding thing is it was made at all uh he said it's like a dog walking on its hind legs the real wonder is that it actually even happens at all um and that's i think one of the real important accomplishments of dark crystal as well everything you see there is built probably the last movie made where that happens i think the only effect in um dark crystal is um the sky i think at one point i think there's a sky that's a special effect but that's really it everything else you see is actually there you know if things are blowing up they blew them up i mentioned fraggle rock earlier and that seemed to be another pretty substantial project for uh jim henson and then there was labyrinth but then what else was he spending his time on after that up until the time he passed away one of the projects that he loved that was also very important to him, most of Jim's projects were very important, but the one that he really loved, and it sort of spun out of a conversation he had had with his oldest daughter, Lisa, was The Storyteller, um, which was sort of the real-life version of fairy tales. And Jim loved – and that's another one that sort of you can see a direct line from Dark Crystal into The Storyteller, uh, these sort of elaborate puppets with elaborate performances and just beautifully done. Some very creative filmmaking. You know, some of the directors on in, in um, uh, the storyteller are people who were directing music videos in the eighties. I mean, that was the mentality, the pace, the look that Jim wanted, and gets it with the storyteller. The storyteller is fantastic television, um, and I think it's also key that it's on television. Jim went back to TV after Labyrinth. Uh, I think he decided that he'd sort of, you know, r- maybe run out of gas a little bit with movies, and so goes back to TV with Storyteller, and Storyteller wins him and uh, wins him Emmys. Um, it's one of those that never quite found an audience and NBC sort of, you know, par for the course, didn't quite know what to do with it. And, uh, they end up rolling it into the Jim Henson hour, um, which was Jim's attempt to do a sort of Walt Disney presents type TV show, variety show, variety show in the sense that, you know, Jim initially imagined it that one week it would be, uh, behind the scenes of the Muppet show. And then the next week it might be a storyteller. And then the next week it would be something like tales of the bunny picnic, you know, so you were really going to make it a very diverse, you know, lineup every week. And NBC said, uh, we, we like all those ideas, just do that. And so he ends up making an hour long show that doesn't quite know what it wants to be. The Jim Henson hour is a well-intended show that was not executed well at all. 
the bigger problem with Jim Henson Hour is, apart from sto- the storyteller, storyteller is the anchor on the Jim Henson Hour. The storyteller is, is brilliantly done. But it's probably the first time the Muppets themselves aren't really funny. Um, and I think that spooked Jim more than anything else. I think more than even just the failure of Labyrinth. And Labyrinth is one of these movies when I bring that up. The kids today, when I, when I talk about Jim at colleges, college students go nuts for Labyrinth. They love Labyrinth. Um, and they love Dark Crystal. I, I always say those are two movies that Jim was right about, but at the wrong time. Um, so, you know, but but after Labyrinth, Jim sort of ba- sort of bails on film production at that point. He's back in TV and now he's got a problem that he's he was trying to bring them up. It's back to TV and they and they they tanked. So that that really spooks him. And that's the moment that I think he realizes that he's being spread too thin. He's trying to run his company. He's got offices in London. That's where the creature shop is. And he's doing special effects through the creature shop for other other movies. And um, and I think that's the moment he decides, you know what, I'm trying to do too much. I need to unload this company. I don't need to be managing my company. I need to just be Jim Henson. And I think that's the moment he decides to approach Disney about buying the company so he can just be sort of the creative director, if you will, of the Henson company. And Disney will own it and own the characters and they will take care of the characters in perpetuity. And I believe I think Jim probably would have ended up with a 15 year exclusive deal for Disney doing this is a dirty word to bring up now, but, you know, doing sort of what John Lasseter did. You know, you bring in somebody who's the creative type and they say, you know, rebuild some of our parks for us, you know, redesign, you know, you can you have your own production. Company. So I really think they wanted Jim to be doing that sort of thing. They they cordoned off a corner of um, the brand new Hollywood Studios, which had just opened. And they said, develop a Muppet section of the park. So they give Jim a park to play in and develop Muppet attractions there, uh, which is where the Muppet 3D movie comes from. So Jim's in discussions with Disney uh, for about a year on this and, you know, turning over the keys to the company. And, and again, he wanted to get out from under the albatross of day to day management. He had been doing that now since he was, you know, in his twenties, really been running a company and very successfully, but uh, since his twenties. And I think finally just the weight of it, he wanted somebody else to take care of the bookkeeping (laughs) and the accounting and the hiring and the firing and the overhead. And he just wanted to go be creative. And so I think Disney was his opportunity where one of the key conditions in it was he wanted his own production company where he'd just go do Labyrinth 2 or Dark Crystal 2 or whatever he wanted to do. Um, and he was also really looking out for those performers, which was something they weren't really aware of uh, at the time. And a lot of them came up to me after the book came out and said, thank you for that. We hadn't heard those stories. You know, Jim was Jim was really kind of bickering with Jeffrey Katzenberg over this um, and was saying, you know, you're you're buying the Muppets, but the Muppets aren't just the toy box full of puppets. You have to bring along Dave Goals to do Gonzo and you have to bring along, you know, Steve Whitmer to do Rizzo Rat. And you have to, you know, yeah, I, I, I would like to come along and train puppeteers and I help recruit and train puppeteers as well. He was trying to really make them understand that puppetry was an art and that it wasn't just the puppets you were getting. You had to cultivate that performer and you had to really value the art of puppetry. And Jim really went round and round with Katzenberg about this, who he thought was being very bullheaded about this. Um, but Jim was really protecting those puppeteers as part of the deal as well. And he's doing a lot of work for Disney at that time, kind of without an agreement. So, like I said, that's where he's doing the Disney 3D movie that's still there to this day and developing attractions that never were realized. And he dies before the deal can be realized. He dies in in uh, May of 1990. And uh, that was really the point where, as a lot of the attorneys told me, there was no joy left in it. And they never they never completed the process of the acquisition until, you know, 2006, I think it was, or four. It's funny to think that two of the people 
uh, and I, I can't swear to Washington Irving, but two of the people that you've written biographies about have ended up selling out to Disney or trying to sell out to Disney. And it, probably the most well-known version of a Washington Irving story is the Disney version of Legend of Sleepy Hollow. So I guess it's full circle. So, Brian, what are you working on today? Uh, I'm writing a biography of Dr. Seuss right now um, that I need to have delivered by the end of the summer. So I hope my editor isn't listening. Well, that will be a great time when we can get together and we can talk about the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T. Oh, very good. Very good. And there's and there's an, another, you know, fiercely independent creative person. And that was that was Jim. That's George Lucas. These very, you know, almost defiant, independent uh, producers, creative types who really want to get their vision down. Um, and, you know, don't, <laughs> as George Lucas always put it, like he didn't, he didn't care what the suits had to say about anything. And Jim was sort of the same way with something like Dark Crystal, something like Labyrinth. And as I've discovered, Dr. Seuss was that way too, especially when he got into the 60s and is working on a lot of these, you know, beginner books. And uh, he's editing a lot of those books and he is, uh, he is the smartest guy in the room. So don't, don't mess with him. Everybody that we've talked about, I keep thinking of like what their attraction is down at Disney World or at Universal Studios. Yeah, there's a great uh, there's a great Seuss Museum up in Springfield, um, and actually the Jim Henson Company did um, the Webulous World of Doctor Seuss with a lot of Seuss a lot of Seuss inspired Muppets. And when I was doing research at the Henson Company, they had a lot of them sort of on display. You know, I mean, they were sitting on top of the cabinets like stuff. So they would sit up and there was a really nice cat in a hat they had up there. So they had done a, the Henson Company actually had done a lot of work with the Seuss company, the Dr. Seuss organization. I had no idea about that. Yeah, really neat. And actually what was, what was you know, again, how it's weird how these things come full circle is uh, Jim's creative director, Michael Frith, who I told you about, who had done a lot of the artwork for the characters in, in um, Land of Gorge. Uh, was actually when his first job out of college as he was believe it or not in his 20s comes out of harvard and his first job is he is dr seuss's editor at random house <laughs> so so i got to come back and talk to him again uh about dr seuss this time instead of jim which was great well hey brian thank you so much for your time today it is always a pleasure talking with you sure this is always uh, it's always great to talk about jim so i, pr I appreciate you having it an open-ended format where i can answer questions for seven and a half minutes We are back, and we are talking about the Dark Crystal. Cat, you were talking before we started recording about all of the research materials and stuff that I was throwing your way, and one of those was all of the comic books that have come out related to the Dark Crystal. And there are there were things that I couldn't track down. There are a ton of books that were related to the Dark Crystal. It's all kind of weird because almost everything related to the world outside of the Dark Crystal is almost all prequel related because we were talking before we took the break that we saw the reunification of the Uru and the Skeksis. So we saw the end of the story. And so almost everything that you see in the comic books and the novels and the fan fiction and all of these kind of things 
all take place. And even there's a new uh, Netflix series that is supposed to happen. I think it's either late this year or early 2019. All of that stuff is prequel related. And there's only, as far as I know, one thing that's sequel related. But then when I'm reading that, um, and I'm trying to remember if it was the power of the Dark Crystal or the legend of the Dark Crystal, it all kind of runs together, that that I'm... I wanted it annotated because there are all these Gelflings in there. And I was like, wait a second. I thought there were only two Gelflings and I hope they're not trying to repopulate the world like Adam and Eve. That would be kind of weird and not good for the genetics. Yeah. That was kind of curious in power of the dark crystal where it's like, where the hell did all these Gelflings come from? They must be incredibly inbred. No wonder they're all dicks. Oh, you two are so horrible to the Gelflings. I love the Gelflings. One of my favorite parts from the film and the fact that we need more Gelflings is when they go into that little chamber and they're like the Gelflings used to live here and they all died. And you want to know what happened to them and who they were? I, I Personally, I love the Gelflings and I think we need more Gelfling mythology. Bring on the Gelfling dedicated comics. We see, and I actually came at it in a different direction because reading uh, some of the issues of The Power of the Dark Crystal, the sequel that they made to The Dark Crystal, and reading the stuff that preceded it, I almost didn't want certain corners of the world explored. Because one of the great appeals to me of The Dark Crystal is that it exists in this sort of fairy tale world, wherein certain things are alluded to in narration and they don't necessarily need to be expanded beyond their more primal archetypical roots that one so associates with the fairy tale. To expand it further, to give a background on the on the characters, on the world, and into in order to present more fully fleshed societies, it begins to transition the, the Dark Crystal out of the realm of the purely fairy tale into more traditional traditional almost Tolkien-esque fantasy which is certainly fine and I have a great deal of appreciation for that particular mode of fantasy but it does seem to transform the world of the Dark Crystal from that primal fairy tale world into a more familiar mode or at least more popular mode of again the Tolkien-esque. And I have no problem with Gelfling and I imagine that there are probably more than just the two. I mean, they didn't know that Kira existed. So, you know, she was hidden amongst the podlings. I'm sure that there are other Gelfling that are out there. But yeah, to your point, I kind of don't necessarily need to know all of that stuff. It starts to get into that George Lucas expanded universe stuff where it's just like, okay, and now let's follow this trail and go over here and over explain things. And, you know, what do they use for money on Mithra and what did they use for this? And then it's just like, okay, just let me have my little, you know, hour and a half fantasy with the dark crystal. And I don't necessarily need to know all that other stuff, but I'm glad that I it's, it's out there and it's available if you want to pick it up, but you don't necessarily have to, it's not like uh it's not like a Richard Kelly thing where it's just like I have no fucking idea what I'm watching in this movie. Oh, well if you read the book, the the five comic books that came before the movie was was released, then maybe you would understand half of what's happening inside of this world. Oh, certainly. And I, again, I will begrudge nobody who is completely invested in this world and who wants to see that further expansion of it. It's just not for me. I mean, as I was reading through some of the comic books of it, it's it just felt like it was starting to stray further and further away from, I, I suppose, my own limited conception of what the Dark Crystal is. And so it became less appealing for me. I think it is testing 
sentiment, though. I mean, I'm with you on that. I don't think they needed the comics at all. But I think it is testament to The Dark Crystal, and it didn't happen with a lot of the other fantasy films that were coming out at the time, is that it creates this mythology that can be built on, and it inspires people to explore that. And it does become Tolkien-esque, and it does become very epic, and it does trigger all these sort of other imaginative stories. I mean, they're not for me either i'm happy with just the film but i can imagine you know a lot of fans who are into that kind of fantasy big epic fantasy it presents an opportunity that a lot of other films from this period didn't or they didn't seem to spark as much of a a sort of fan fiction and and comic fiction in that it's kind of smart that the henson company actually would encourage fan fiction to the point where they would have contests and pretty much whoever won the contest they would say okay this is now official lore or they would maybe have them rewrite it to to tweak it a little bit but they would say this is official lore and put it out as you know a real book or material and say here you go this is the real deal so and eventually like lucas not necessarily came into that as well, but like they don't squash the fan films most of the time. So they, they're not embracing it as much as Henson, but Henson seems to have a much better relationship with the fans than I would say, uh, Lucas does. But the two are, you know, they've been in bed for a while. Um, obviously with, with Yoda and then with Kurtz on this. And then as we went forward, we would get more, uh, projects coming together like Labyrinth where the two would be working together. It's so much so that, you know, going down to, uh, Disney, uh, a few years ago and seeing like Muppet World right next to Star Wars World, you know, was like, okay, yeah, these guys are very much invested because they are kind of doing the same thing as far as world building and fantasy, just coming at it from different angles. And then even the, the business practices are, are a little bit different. And I do think it is rather smart if one thing that it is curiously while it is expanding by expanding, by implementing sort of the fan voices of it, it almost seems to mirror the, in certain ways, the, expansion of fairy tales fairy tales extending as they are from uh traditional oral traditions before they were codified by people like the brothers Grimm. so by making it uh, almost crowdsourced it is somewhat in keeping with that organic expansion um i don't necessarily think it's necessary but you know it's again it's for people that want if they want more of this world it is being provided for them and in the in these days it seems to be exploding out with the amount of content with the comic book series that boom put out with this upcoming netflix series then again they've been talking about uh sequels or prequels to the dark crystal for so long now that i almost don't uh believe that the netflix series will come off get off the ground well we'll see if it happens yeah i was very surprised when they released that teaser a few months ago and i was like okay and then i was trying to see like okay how much of this is new footage versus old footage and then at the same time i'm also worried that we are in a digital world. Will we just be doing digital recreations of these characters rather than the real effects? And I imagine that most people would argue with me and say, there's no reason to do practical effects anymore. We should be doing everything digitally. But when you go back and you see this film that was coming out in 1982 and seeing just how great it still looks today, I mean, part of that is the cinematography, part of that is the sound editing, part of that is the special effects, part of that is that amazing 
score that we have where if you just hear those first few notes of the score, I'm immediately transported back into the world of the Dark Crystal. There were so many pieces that were pulling together that it was more than just the puppetry, but the puppetry was the heart of it. Yeah, speaking of that score, I mean, I don't think Trevor Jones get necessarily gets the accolades that are perhaps um, owed him, but goddamn, the the score for the Dark Crystal is absolutely fantastic, and it, it is every bit the equal of some of the masters that were working during this period. I absolutely loved the score. He did um, Labyrinth as well, Trevor Jones, but I prefer the uh, the. Dark Crystal score because it just works so well. But there is a creepy story to that score because um, me and Mike were talking about this show uh, coming up on Facebook and then I logged into Spotify. I do listen to a lot of soundtracks, but not that typically those kind of soundtracks are more 70s Eurocult soundtracks. And there it was recommending out of nowhere the Dark Crystal soundtrack on Spotify. So obviously. You know, I was told Mike and we were like, you know, they're spying on us, <laughs> spying on our messenger conversations because it was just a really creepy coincidence that that happened. Oh, I don't think it was a coincidence at all. I think Mark Zuckerberg knew exactly what you needed to hear exactly then. Trevor Jones also did the uh, one of my favorite scores, which was uh, Free Jack. I didn't realize that. So anytime I can mention Free Jack, I'm going to. Uh, Lord love Free Jack. We will keep it alive. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play preview for next week's show. Oh, could I have a uh, punch in the drink, a beer, You know what happened to me? Somebody stole all my money. I was sitting in the movie and they stole all my money. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Barbara Loden's Wanda. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and El Goro. El Goro, Chaos Nuevo, and El Monde de Tu. Well, right now, at the time that this episode will be released, I'll be wrapping up my month of animation, where every May I tend to suspend regular films and just focus upon the animated works. And that's always a bit of fun. I try to do a cross-section of what's available in uh, Japan, of course, uh, to, uh, touch in on American animation. There's going to be some grim things in there as I uh, going into the more depressing British territory with uh, uh, Where the Wind Blows and pairing that up with Grave of the Fireflies. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's going to be some dark territory, but it should be a heck of a lot of fun. And if you want to check that out, you can always find me on Talk Without Rhythm. Just do a search for that wherever you find podcasts or the main website, tworpodcast.blogspot.com. And how about you, Kat? How's the hardest working woman in the U.K.? God, Mike, every time I, go, <laughs> I never know when the, when these are going to show and what's been announced or not, so I'll play it safe. I've done a few audio commentaries for Kino, which are coming out soon, so I did Trapeze, a lot of talk about Bert Lancaster and Tony Curtis's homoeroticism with the wonderful Gina Lola Bridgeter. 
I did a commentary for Billy Wilder, who I fucking love. His film, Mirror La Deuce, which is coming out in July in a new 4K restoration. And I did one of Hitchcock's most underrated films. It's like a bit of a southern gothic, gothic melodrama in, in Technicolor and the Capricorn. Uh, we've got a Patreon set up for our podcast, Thoughts of Darkness, so we can get doing some more episodes of that. And we just did a very risque episode on the Me Too climate and looking at films like Elle and the Telephone Book. My book on Sergio Martino came out a couple of months ago, and that's available through Arrow, so you can buy that. And that's like a bit of a sort of um, introduction to Sergio Martino's entire career, not just his shallow films it looks is huge input into italian sexy comedy it looks at his action films like everything like that and mike needs to do an american tiger and get me on to that show also i did a video essay for arrows upcoming death smiles on a murderer joe Mato gothic film which people are suddenly realizing is quite wonderful now it's been restored of course i've always known that though and i think everyone should buy it i already have the martino film on the list for 2019 so we will definitely talk about that did you do the commentary on images robert altman's images oh gosh yes we did robert altman's images as well which i keep forgetting because we recorded that like a year ago uh, and i think that came out in march and if you haven't seen that film it's fucking amazing it's got like a, it's, if you like things like Repul- Polanski's Repulsion or you know it's got a weird folk horror vibe it's it's just all sorts of stuff never been available in a decent print and Arrow have just done an amazing job on it it's, it's just it just looks absolutely beautiful but that was with Sam my co-host over at Daughters of Darkness and don't forget the Daughters of Darkness Patreon <laughs> check that out as well uh, if you're not too busy giving money to Sam and also to El Goro for their patrons, you can head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find a link to our Patreon, or you don't feel like giving money to the Projection Booth because, you know, times are tough, even though we got that massive tax cut last year. Oh my God, we're just rolling in money in the United States now. But uh, if you don't want to give any money, you just want to give some feedback and you know, let us know that we're doing a terrible job or go on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. You know, this is a economy where ratings and reviews actually do help quite a bit. Every rating, every review that we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.